Hello, it is me, Ronald, and we are back with another episode of the Nante Japan podcast. And this is our year-end episode. Round of applause, everyone. Yay! So, as you may have heard, there are multiple voices here, not just me and Hannah's. So, Hannah, say hi, first of all. We have friends! Yes, actually, funny enough, funny enough, I will say this, is that I actually met everyone on this episode this year. Ronald has friends! Yay! The real takeaway. The real takeaway. So, oh, the first person that spoke was actually the first person I met this year on this episode. So, introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Patrick St. Michelle. I'm one of Ronald's friends. And I'm also a writer who covers Japanese music uh, based in Tokyo, though I'm actually in California at the time of recording. And yeah, I contribute to places like the Japan Times, uh, Pitchfork, et cetera, et cetera. Just go Google it. And I write make-believe melodies. And thank you so much for having me back on. Thank you for joining us. And you have a Twitter account too, MB Melodies. Correct. At MB Melodies X, the site formerly known as Twitter. Let's put some oh, respect on it. Yes. How every single Japanese newspaper refers to it as. I'm yes. just preparing us for one of the news stories we're going to have to talk about when we're going to have to do the <laughs> same exact format. Oh. You want to know what we're talking about? Formerly known as. Yeah, yeah. Fill oh, in the God. blanks, everybody. But I hear another voice here. Who is this other voice? Introduce yourself. Okay, hello, uh, this, I'm Rio, um, the other person I'm glad to meet for Ronald and Hannah this year. Um, yeah! Was, yeah, so yeah, I um, write about Japanese music as well, probably mainly on my substack, this side of Japan. But yeah, I'm glad to be back. Yeah! We're glad to have both of you back. I guess just to round it out, I guess Rio and I did meet in Tokyo earlier this year, too. Yeah! Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah! Yeah. It's crazy. I met everyone in this podcast this year, too. Now it's just time for me to go. (laughs) Yeah, I've never actually met Hannah in person. That's the one, like, the missing bingo mark. So that's a 2024 goal. A 2024 goal, yes. But we are here to talk about 2023 in its final days. So, um, our first topic is going to be what are your takeaways for this year? And we're going to start with Patrick. Sure. So, when I think back on J-pop in 2023, what sticks out to me is this is the year where I felt that artists and labels were really starting to turn outwards in an actual serious way, not the sort of traditional like, oh yeah, it's our dream to perform in vague overseas territory. This was a year where a lot of Japanese music actually traveled and performed very well. If you looked at various viral charts or even assorted billboard rankings, Um, most notably Yoasobi's Idol, which was kind of a big... (laughs) breakout moment, I would argue, for the current era of J-pop, especially on the global stage. But you also had artists like, you know, Atarashi Gakko not only went viral on TikTok around the world, you know, they're, I think they're still on a U.S. tour and wrapping that up. They were on, what was it, Jimmy Kimmel Live, the late night show. Mm -hmm. 
And that's pretty significant. I think it's the first Japanese act since Baby Metal to be on a late night show. Uh, somebody fact check that. This is for this is for assumptions. <laughs> this I think they, I think they would be. It's them or Hatsune Miku confusing David Letterman. But either way, that was a long time ago. Um, so Atarashi Gako, Yoasobi performed overseas. Ado didn't perform overseas yet, but she's made more moves to introduce herself on the global stage and has a world tour set for the first quarter of 2024. You had XG, who kind of made chart history by being the first, I mean, air quotes, because I don't think they identify as this, J-pop group to, you know, break through on American terrestrial radio and then sort of use that momentum to gain more attention, including a huge billboard magazine story. So, and just like talking with people in Tokyo about, you know, where things are going, you can tell the industry is way more aware of what's possible. And there's a, there's more of an active push to be able to do, you know, we can be both big in Japan and abroad. We don't have to choose anymore. There's a path we can go down now. Do you know what's funny? A couple of months ago, I almost injured myself at the gym. Do you want to know why? Why? (laughs) Because I was like lifting weights and I heard something and I was just like, you have to fucking be kidding me right now. And it was the opening of XG's left, right. And I was just like, oh, okay. I was like, why are they playing XG at my gym? No. You almost tore a quad muscle because you heard that. (laughs) Well, I have more positive news. So Google Trends actually... Uh, released what was tr- their their trending list for 2023 as they usually do and for global the number one most searched song this year is none other than yo Sobi's idol let's fucking go Woo-hoo. let's go one for my people and then okay. hum to search yo Sobi was number three hmm. my year so one thing I have to say about this is that, like, I feel like there's a song that's often forgotten about in these discussions, and it's a song that actually is that actually kind of like made it actually didn't kind of make history to make history this year, and that would be Yunezu Kenshi's "Kickback," which actually yes, was the first true. song mm-hmm. in Japanese to be certified gold. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's actually like, I feel like it's not discussed enough, but it's the only one that actually has like an actual like certification Certification. overseas, like as far as the U.S. goes. I would say it's quite fitting since you could argue Kenji Onezu kind of set all of this off a few years ago. I mean, a lot of the Yoasobis and Autos of the world pretty much owe him a big like thanks for taking this sort of like post vocaloid sound and making it popular. So it's fitting that, you know, this kind of went under the radar because his contributions are under the radar, despite still being quite large when you actually look at the numbers. But, Mm -hmm. no, as a metaphor, it's beautiful. Yeah. And also, like, the anime side of things, because I believe it's, what, Chainsaw Man? Yeah, it's the Chainsaw Man opening. Right. And then, um, yeah, I mean, like, obviously there's Oshinoko with Idol, and then there's, like, Ano's song, which is another Chainsaw Man hit. Um, it's just like, 
it's crazy because like I had a coworker who's like so into Chainsaw Man. It's like, oh yeah, I listen to the Arnold song a lot. I'm like, wow. So it's like all these kids are listening to like Ken, like Yonichi Kenzo and Anno just by like listening to anime. So speaking of wow, coworkers, yeah. you just reminded me of something else. So I was going to lunch one day with a coworker, and we get in his car and. He's young, and like he's playing like new jeans, and then guess what came on after new jeans? XG shooting star. <laughs> so you just have all these encounters with XG Ronald. That's kind of the, the story <laughs> I of your have, year. I have all of these XG encounters, and I'm just like, huh? What? Like maybe this is like a real thing. It's pretty clear you don't you don't run in anime circles. It's having like as you are at a gym and at some sort of like nice car. It sounds like so, for those of you, whereas I encounter all the anime like, things. Yeah, yeah, that's my side of the year's yeah. story. Like running into anime adjacent stories, mm-hmm. no XG. So I guess it's like the very polar opposite experience. I guess it's just more of just like a like kind of like a pop space because it's just like. I listen to New Jeans and like XG fits in right next to New Jeans kind of right. thing. Right. <laughs> and then it's just like, oh, something like top 40 to get you like ready to work out. XG. And I was just like, oh, XG. Maybe it is. I don't know. I, I should just say like why I, I just find XG insidious. I said this before, but I'll say it again. I just find it insidious because like I actually... I don't like the premise that XG is built on, which is just like basically as Max Matsura, the person who created them, the head of AVEX said, is that it's basically K-pop exploitation. And I don't like that idea. Like I is that wish. what the X in X-pop stands for? Exploitation? <laughs> exploitation pop. <laughs> like I Yo, wish I never heard Max Matsura's like, like yeah, the behind the scenes, I suppose, his of his concept of it, because it it just like put a bad taste in my mouth for a long time about the group. I just can't shake it. It's just like I'm just using Korea. Like oh god, like did everyone read the Billboard story, the feature about XG that they ran I earlier did this it. fall? What do you I say? read it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's very to me. It was very you know. Very billboard, you know, it's like kind of a this is music business strategy. Great, that's what you do, that's fine. But they spent so much time talking about X pop, and you know, th- for anyone who doesn't know, X pop is the invented genre that XG brands themselves as. They're not J pop, they're not K pop, they're X pop, which stands for extraordinary. Well, thing <laughs> it does now, I'm taking that to the bank. Um. But yeah, it's to read that article, I was really struck by just how everyone involved is like pretending it's a new thing when like the underlying thing is it's a group that sings in English. And it's like <laughs> that's to me, that's the majority of pop music history. And like I thought one of the good things about the past decade was we were kind of like, hey, cool, other languages can kind of mix and it's really great. Do you want to know what the real basis of XG is? Go for it. I want to hear it. Oh. Well, yeah. It's it's basically just like, oh, we made Fakie successful internationally. 
I didn't realize I'd be doing the in memoriam section so early. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. But for those truly who know, though, for those Fakey who was know, ahead of the curve 10 years too early. Yeah. And the I mean, talking about people ahead of the curve, it's like we just talked about Yonezu Kenshi. Now we're talking about Fakey. At some point, I'm going to bring up real. <laughs> In the summer of 2013, Avex released Better Without You, which was like the debut by Fakie, which is like this group of just like, um, they were like international, I guess, in a sense, because like you had like what? diaspora Japanese girls, but then also girls that were like half. And they like all like either like grew up overseas partially or like went to international oh. school, something like that. And they released an English song and like they were trying to go international supposedly and like it didn't really go anywhere. But then now we have XG 10 years later and Fakie actually broke up. R.I.P. But yeah, Rose turn for trends. Are we doing train trends or takeaways? Your takeaways, takeaways, takeaways. Okay. Okay, yeah. My takeaway from like Japanese music, yeah, it's I feel like this is a really exciting time for anyone new to really hop in. Both like there's so much going in the mainstream things to really catch your attention, especially as like Patrick mentioned, there's a lot of like international appeal and then they're like very so forth going for those overseas like attention, but on the flip side of things, like um I really appreciated like Japanese music's kind of like domestic kind of like self-sustainability in the sense that there's so many scenes that like you know the goal was like the jap like it has to be bigger than japan or that's what like the attitude seemed at one point whether it be like the rap scenes there or trying to make like anime music over like abroad or like idol music or something but it just like it doesn't have to be that way maybe they'll like grab influences from overseas to like really freshen up their sounds but it's just like you know it's a whole ecosystem in itself and it's like it's you can just really stay in japan really build a scene there and just thrive without really taking account of overseas mm-hmm. connections like that's what i felt whether it be you know with like the scenes i mentioned like rap music was really thriving this year i feel like even even with the updates from like really on trend with what's going on in america um but yeah it just seemed like it's you can lose yourself in these different scenes whether it's indie rock hardcore or rap music and then really just lose yourself in the year about it and not really care about what's happening in the outside whether it be america or the other asian countries or you know outside of it interesting interesting I'm curious, yo, what rappers do you think really kind of best exemplified that in 2023? Which ones do you think kind of like crystallize that takeaway for you? Hmm. Um, I feel like I think a good one at the top of my head right now, because um, Tokyo Young Vision is a crew that counts also like norm big norm core club i forgot what their name was but they really had a song out with like really borrowing from club rap and stuff like that so all these collectives really um Mm -hmm. um whether it's like really um 
like real Gilly, Young Gilly's squad. Um, that's Tokyo Young Vision. Um, uh, did, uh, but yeah, just like they're grabbing all these overseas. They're like really paying attention to what's happening, but it's something that's also to themselves. Um, mm-hmm. That's like the cat re- replicate anywhere else, I guess. But that's like the two names, like at least like two. I can I can think of two songs that really exemplifies their sound. And it's like, okay, I see what they're doing, but they have a whole scene behind them that can mm-hmm. really back them up. Hmm. Uh, so I get to Hannah's turn now. What is your takeaway, Hannah? So I'm actually gonna combine both of the takeaways because my takeaway is also that japan is like turning outside in ways that they haven't done before but in i'm i'm struck by um patrick for your year end corner you actually talked a little bit about what i think rose talking about because you were comparing the international expansions of xg and Atarashi Gako, and you're like, I want Atarashi Gako. I don't want XG. <laughs> to be fair, my wording was much more, I think Atarashi Gako's approach will work better. Now, if yeah, you want to, yeah, yeah. As, as, when writing in a publication like the Japan Times, we have to adapt a more objective voice. Um, but you could read into <laughs> that that way if you'd like. Patrick, do you Which care time? to explain what mm-hmm. these approaches are yeah. for those who do not read the article? Sure. So as we kind of touched on when talking about XG uh, and the whole idea of X-pop, so what XG has done, XG's sort of their uh, elevator pitch, if you will, is it's a group of Japanese women who are kind of been trained and work mostly in the K-pop space, but who don't identify as either. They identify as X-pop. And central to that is that all of their lyrics are in English. So they've all been trained in English. Some of them are native English speakers. Others are kind of, you know, learning as they go. That's fine. Uh, And they're kind of, to me, doing what contemporary K-pop is doing, Mm -hmm. especially the stuff that's kind of post-BTS really breaking through, right? Where it's kind of like, how how do we turn this into a sustainable thing? That means a lot of English language songs. All the solo members of BTS were kind of going down that path this year, right, in the States. So XG's playing that game, playing with a lot of different sounds that are very on trend. You know, left, right is a very Y2K aesthetic. I'm doing air quotes, nobody can see them, but hey, <laughs> use your imagination. And then when they did their EP later in the year, they were kind of playing with the Jersey Club, like New Jeans-esque, like garage sound albeit in a slightly different way, but you could tell where they were drawing influence. They're very on trend. They're very not tied to a single place. They're borderless. They should be on Kohaku. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) The easy, low-hanging fruit. (laughs) (laughs) So Atarashi Gako, who are way more oddball, this is a quartet of women who wear, like, sailor suits, Japanese school style, they sing entirely in Japanese, except for a, an occasional, like, you know, punchy English line. And their music's, I would say, not on trend whatsoever. It's all over the place. Um, their big hit, uh, which is actually several years old, uh, Otona Bru, is, like, vaguely Enka. 
when you listen to how they construct it, but it's with like a bit more of a modern punk. That's it's a good that way to put it. Pseudo Inca that like is clearly drawing on the style. And this mm-hmm. this is this is Rose Point where it's like it it kind of is some adjacent to another style, but they're clearly like unique in their own way. <laughs> yes. And to me, that's what people I find like about Japanese music, whether it's J-pop or like going more underground. It's like you can't find this stuff at other places because a lot of times the Japanese music industry is out of step with the world, but that can create really interesting sounding ideas. So to me, Atarashigako is distinctly Japanese, like from their visual presentation to what their music is doing. And I think when you compare them with XG and not to pit girl group against girl group, you can do this with other outfits, but (laughs) it's an easy comparison because you can see two potential paths that J-pop can follow. And I think you're going to see attempts to replicate both in the years ahead. And I personally think the Atarashigako path is more interesting. And I also think it has better potential to stick longer, mm-hmm. but the XG path is successful too. And I think you're going to see a lot of like, you know, especially people who have followed K-pop and are like, how do we be like K-pop? And they're like, just be like XG. So it'll be interesting. So yeah, like I I like that framing, but I will also say that like Rose framing of like Japan t- incorporates trends is kind of essential to that because the thing about Atarashigako is the reason why they popped off so hard is that they were like TikTok is, of course, like, the monster beast this year, right? Everybody loves TikTok. Um, and Atarashigako was like, oh, we can do a TikTok in our own style. And that's why Otona Blue, like, blew up. But it's also really interesting because it's kind of just, like, they're maintaining their separation while still doing super cool and interesting things. And then the third thing that I've noticed is that Unlike the last time Japan tried to do international stuff, for me, it's always going to be when they, when like Sony released Tofu Records and it was like the 2000s, like, I guess we were overdue for this because it's been 23 years now. Um, But it's interesting because in the past, they were so adamant on doing things alone. And this time around, they're just like, you know what? There are two other Asian countries. We can totally rely on them for help. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And for me, like, that's the other major story. That, like, there is a sense of cooperation with China and South Korea that I did not see last time. I guess, like, that was kind of inevitable because China had not developed yet and Korea was still developing. Whereas, like, this time around, like, both are giants in their own right. (laughs) So... There is that sense, but it's also just kind of like, we've seen all this before, so I wonder how this is going to play out. (laughs) Do you mean, like, involvement from China and Korea to make Japanese more, like, pan-Asian or, like, around Asia, or? It's pan-Asian without using the term. They're very, very adamant about still, like, 
maintaining a sense of separation because they're like, we're unique, you're unique, and this is what attracts the world to us, right? And there's a very clear understanding that, like, there are certain things that consumers go to Japan for, go to China for, go to Korea for, and they want to maintain those, like, things that make them stand out against everyone else. But they also want to support each other in that as well. So, like, a great example of that is, like, the second NiGiU project, right? That's still, like, is that a K-pop group? Is that a J-pop group? Like, I don't know. I don't really think anybody is, like, keeping tabs at this point. But it's kind of, like, the hallmark of the way that they think about it. There's also stuff like, so uh, the anime for Soul Leveling just aired in California. Um, they showcased the first two episodes, and it's going to pu- be publicly released, I think, either next week or the week after. Basically, like, they want to catch as many people at home as possible. But that's another example of, like, let's emphasize the things that make both of us super cool to the rest of the world. And we're, while at the same time, still maintaining our separation. But we're going to help each other out. With, like, money, like, uh, Hiroyuki Sawano is actually writing the opening theme song for Soul Leveling with TXT. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Is this K-pop? Is this J-pop? Is this Annie song? I guess it kind of fits all three. <laughs> I feel like what I want to see as, like, the fourth country to join, I guess, would be, like, Thailand. They have, mm-hmm. they're so, like, into yeah. Japanese culture. And, like, I know, like... Japanese music, at least, is, like, trying to, like, you know, work together with Thai pop, at least, you know? It would be really cool, but I also think it's really important that, like, every time... And I know what you're talking about when it comes to, like, uh, Thai music, Thai dramas, and all that stuff. And I actually think, like, to a certain extent, all of the Southeast Asian countries are really there, where... Every single one of them takes all these, like, very, very big influences and basically thinks to themselves, like, how do we do this in our own style? Which is what I love the most about all of this. Hmm. That no one's trying to exactly replicate it. They're all just saying, like, how, how do we, like, do this in a way that is uniquely us? And that's what makes all of this, like, cooperation very special. Which is not it, what you saw last time. <laughs> we, and I think another important thing that happened this year, you know, when we talk about like international, like J-pop going international, I think the default we always, and I do this too, is we're thinking, oh, to the West, right? Yeah. Like, Cause that's kind of the quote unquote, holy grail, everybody thinks. But just as importantly this year, I do think this was the year it felt like, oh, J-pop got like even bigger in Asia and like a song that you know we haven't mentioned yet that arguably is the biggest of all of these if we're going by pure impact is Imase's Night Dancer which won another TikTok hit um it came out mm. in late 2022 but it went like crazy viral on TikTok starting in South Korea in yeah. the early part of 2023 and it got so big that i mean Imase became the first Japanese artist to chart on melon the south korean domestic yeah they were mm-hmm. and like imase has done so much just in korea this year 
it's widely like, he might be more popular in Korea than Japan at this point. Like, but he's just like always on these YouTube channels. He's collaborating with La Seraphim like multiple times. He was on Mama, the award show that was held in Tokyo, but primarily <laughs> focused on K-pop. So maybe a mulligan, but but like that to me is a really great example of what I another element of what I find so exciting about 2023 was watching. You know, in the 2010s, it was such a like X versus Y kind yeah. of. Mm-hmm. way people talked about Asian entertainment, frankly. I mean, honestly, Asia, period. Whereas in the 2020s, it's been way more, how do these things intersect? And like, you know, you have the obvious stuff like, oh, here's K-pop coming into J-pop and you get something like J01 or Anisha U. But you go the other way, you have things like Night Dancer or Yoasobi becoming big or like, you know, Aespa's doing the Beyblade ending song or whatever. And you're like, what the hell is that? But okay. Actually, the biggest thing that I can think of in that vein is, um, so this, this is for another article that I'm writing with a couple of friends. But um, for VTubers, this was a year where a lot of them kind of proved their viability, like the non-Japanese ones. And chief among them was actually Korea's groups, all of which sing in an extremely Japanese style. Like, you listen to them. One of their biggest songs is a Korean cover of Fansa. And I assure you guys, like, 99% of the people listening do not know what the song is. I'm pretty sure Ronald has never heard it in his life, but if he does, he would also... He would... It is literally like the iconic VTuber fan service song that talks about like, it's a very, very idolish song. If you listen to it, I think a part of you might actually die inside. (laughs) So I heavily warn you against it, but it, it's kind of like exactly that J-pop is becoming bigger in these other markets. In Thailand, you saw a huge explosion of Thai-based VTubers, and they're exactly in this extremely, like, very, very Japanese style. One of them actually went viral for covering Fujikaze. And I was like, wow, how fitting. (laughs) Speaking of him, he did an Asia tour this summer. Yeah. Yeah, that's another good example. Yeah. Just him playing and the piano. <laughs> it it sold out like very quickly. He was in Indonesia, Malaysia, a few other countries, primarily Southeast Asia, but like it mm-hmm. did really well the tour. But um thinking about what Patrick said, like I don't want to be the numbers person, but I am the numbers person, but I actually do agree with you about Imase being more popular in Korea than in Japan. Mm-hmm. Like the song did better, like Night Dancer did do better in Korea than it did in Japan. That's good. I was just going on vibes. And I, and like, it's funny you guys are talking about Thai because, like, the first time I ever heard a Thai song, do you guys want to know when the first time I ever heard a Thai song was? Oh, was it through XG? Nope. Nope. What? I thought the song was crap. But I saw oh the video gosh. and I was just like, these guys don't look Japanese. And come to find out they were Thai. 
And I actually mentioned this to Patrick, I think like a year or two ago when he was talking about like, oh, Thai and Japanese collaborations. And the first one I can think of was in 2006. And guess who did it? Refresh my memory. Johnny's. Oh. Here we go. Okay. For me, it's always going to be BNK48, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's actually a really good one. Like, Koizuru Fortune Cookie was a massive hit in Japan, but it was actually larger in Thailand when you do it as a percentage of the population. So, I guess it's my turn now. Yeah. The moment we've been waiting for. Dun, dun. Take away. Well, Ronald's take away. My takeaway, you know what? I didn't really come into this with a takeaway prepared, but like, but like, I don't really know what my takeaway is because like, I felt as if this year was kind of just like things that were already like happening, just continuing to happen. Like, you guys talk about like things like international, but we had that Fujikaze song that was international last year that resulted in this tour this year. You just have like, pretty much more of what was happening last year happening this year, but like on like a bigger level. I mean, like not to make it about them, but like the fact that like my first in-person interview since COVID was with Hannah in DC with Travis Japan. Dun, dun, dun. So it's kind of just like this whole like international thing. Yeah, it is happening. And it was just like, I remember just sitting there and being just like, I haven't done this in person since 2019. Because, like, people haven't really been coming over because of COVID. And, like, now we see that definitely changing in the past few months as restrictions have lessened. And, like, we start returning back to something that was already happening to an extent, like, in 2019. Because 2019 was the year I went to so many... And Hannah was there with me for a lot of them. So many, like, Japanese concerts by people I couldn't have imagined ever, like, coming here. Like, I saw, like, who do, who do we see? We saw... Hoshino Gen and was Misha. the most surprising one, I think. Like, Misha was more expected because I'm just like, oh, yeah, like, of course, like, the Japanese consulate would definitely sponsor and act like Misha. But, like, I was like, how do you get Hoshino Gen here? Like, he had just come off his Dome tour and was, like, doing, like, a 500-person venue in mm -hmm. Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And we were just like, whoa, this is real. But so, I think, though, the one thing that I would push back on is keeping your own sense of self when going abroad. Because I don't think I felt it in 2019. In Back in 2019, I think there was still this, like, feeling that you had to conform to what the West wanted. So, like, the the most easiest example that I can think of is the fact that, like, 1OK Rock really took off in the West because they always sing in English for, like, various reasons, right? Um, but, like, that's a big one. Or, like, uh, like, when I think of BOA's first, like, American release... That was all in English, mm -hmm. right? Like, there was still this sense that you had to conform. And, like, wow, it's been a while since I mentioned them. But, like, I actually do think part of it is that uh, BTS was big even before Dynamite. 
And the fact that they got big off of completely Korean songs really helped. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, go ahead, sorry. Oh, uh, sorry, this is, like, kind of maybe not with, like, live music and, like, international reach, but, like, I wrote it, like, on my year end, I did have a similar thought in the sense of, like, I don't know if this is, like, a beginning of something new or just, like, finally, you know, it's whatever is building up from the past half decade or so is mm-hmm, finally mm-hmm. coming to fruition in the sense of, like, I used, um, you know, Ano song, for example, Chu Tayose, um, you know, it's like from the from the um, you know on the outside, it looks very like 2023 in the sense that like it blew up on TikTok. It has very like extra musical elements to really bring it bring its hype around. But like you look at the actual music, and it's like um, for I mean I'm blanking on the name, but like the guy who was so part of Sorte- yes, uh, so uh, shoot, like the what was the name the band. Um, um, I know like, who the, you're talking about, but I'm blanking. The Yucker Shimmer Etsko's band. Um, so Tai Se Oh, So Tai Se Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So that's like, you know, like I'm pretty, I, I know Patrick has written about how basically, yeah, like shaped how, you know, this the current decade is kind of sounding. Um, but that whole like, co- like emphasis on like more of like syllables and words, especially like narratives and like mm-hmm. really that very hooky very like nonsensical lyrics that's like all that band stuff and it's like he's the one who wrote it and then that it's like you know you think of it, it's like well is it like i like that you know we have with like yo sovi like we're talking about um can can she like Kenshi, it's like all the post vocalized stuff coming into now like mainstreaming of how pop sounds right now um like lyric writing or what have you and it's like well, is it like, you know, is it just like a snowballing of like, like post-Nikunde Godoga stuff not coming into now? Or is this, is this something like, you know, really like, really truly something new? Is this all just like COVID getting out of the way finally? I think, okay, so yes and no. Um, I don't think it was necessarily a guarantee that it would be like in this format. I do think, and here's where I think uh, COVID actually plays a big part. And I was going to talk about this later, so it's, like, great that I get to talk about it now. Um, COVID actually uh, led to the largest manga sales in recorded history. So in Japan, manga, uh, they've been recording manga sales since, like, 1950, I think. And last year either last year or the year before um or were they talking about like early this year so it would have been like 22 21 and 20 the three years combined were like larger than the 20 years that have come before it or something the united states actually exceeded france in terms of absolute dollars of manga sold which has never happened uh ever I think France has always outstripped the United States, even back when our manga market was huge. Um, and like all these other factors. But basically, without COVID, you wouldn't have this massive international explosion of anime, webtoons, and manga. And I think that is the key component 
to like people not having to conform as much because when you're already talking about an audience that's watching subtitles or this like completely separate from the West format, you're already talking about an audience that is primed to like your stuff. To add to that, I think that's all 100% true. But it also, because of COVID, I think the mm-hmm. actual Japanese music industry itself actually changed in ways that yeah. maybe it's probably fair to say accelerated trends that were already in motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Even as you said, in 2019, you were kind of like, you were seeing things develop. But COVID both introduced a new generation of stars. You know, that's when Yoasobi takes off in Japan. It's just, it's when EGU debuts. Um, it's, it's really an epoch shift, but also like just covering this industry. It's like, that's also when the companies that were straggling and were like not sold on things like YouTube and streaming by 2020, you know, when they're forced to only have to use that, even for domestic listeners, they kind of realize, oh, okay, we have to change everything. And I think the first artist that you guys interviewed post-pandemic is very telling of this, Travis Japan, which is a group that comes from a talent agency, you know, right or wrong, regarded as being very anti-internet throughout their history and very, like, super protective to the point where, like, photos can't be allowed (laughs) on Google image search. And now here they are with a group that actually was kind of, like, very... They're on streaming, even if that's because of their American deal, but whatever, they're still there. Um, They're doing interviews abroad. You know, they're all over. My parents knew who Travis Japan were because they watched America's Got Talent. (laughs) Like, (laughs) oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I had something to talk with them. (laughs) So, and it was a joining group. Um, But yeah, I think that's just as important is the industry itself really kind of got scrambled in a good way. And things like the first take even showed a lot of these artists and companies that like, oh, like people use the internet. Sure, they're stuck at home right now, but they're still going to use it later. So that's the other important component is it goes both ways. And that's really prepared us for this moment where this artistic development that I think Rio was talking about could really take off. Hmm. Hmm. That's a good point. But like, I feel like everything you guys just said really does just like add to my point of just like, I feel like we are just now back on the path that was already being forged pre COVID and COVID just like guile away and just let everything just bloom and blossom like how it should have been. I mean, sure it did affect it like in a good way, like the scrambling you spoke of, but it just like things are just emerging now and it's like better in a way than it was before. I don't, like I said, I don't think we would have had as much, um, I don't think, I think there would have been a greater insistence on conformity had COVID not happened. Because it wasn't entirely clear that um, people, like this idea of like atarashigako, right? To give you an example, the idea that like um, you can kind of promote 
as that sense of like, oh, like, look at them. They're super, you know, they're super like, they're super unique and very, very Japanese. Like, is that something that we should keep? I don't know if that would have necessarily happened in the post-COVID world. Hmm. It could have, but it's just not as guaranteed. I can see your point. Um, so we did our takeaways for the year. So where should we go next, Hannah? Okay, but like we have ignored one of the bigger uh, elephants in the room, which is that like, unfortunately, one of the other big takeaways is that if you look at Japan's top 100 uh, album, it is almost entirely idols now, which basically just makes it like. Oh, that. Yeah. So are we going to ask the question that I was asking you the other day? Yes, which and is. So the is question is. So the question is, and like I listened to a podcast from the New York Times about this a couple of weeks ago. And my question is because, as someone pointed out on the site, the entire top 10 albums of the year on Billboard is boy bands. And it also is. Also an Oricon. And is it the same for Oricon? I, it probably is the same for Oricon. Let me just like scroll yeah. through. It is the same for Oricon. So basically, yeah, because they're, they're basically the same. So King and Prince is number one. Snowman's number two. This is Oricon I'm reading, but Billboard's basically the same. 17 is number two. Number three, sorry. Stray Kids is number four. 17 again at number five. Stones is six. 17's again at number seven. Stray Kids again at eight. Nani Wadanshi at nine. Actually, Billboard is different because Oricon has back number at 10. But when you go over to Billboard, they have Tomorrow X Together. Is it X Together or Times Together? TXT, so X. TXT, yeah. I think. So TXT is at 10. But it just begged this question of just like, is the out, because before we used to like think of just like, I don't, okay. It's just like something I like, because like, this is like a question that like people always like have a question. We've been asking this question for years now, just like what exactly is popular? Like, I mean, like before or back in the day, like 20 years ago, you just were like, oh, just like the CD sold a lot, but then digital was introduced. And then like, basically like all these like gimmicks were introduced with CDs and it became like, oh, this is like a digital. And then so, but now it's at the point now where like, in some cases, where digital is big still, like streaming is big, but like, can you really ignore someone that is selling a million CDs when few people are doing it? And they're not on streaming, so you can't really compare it. So you have to look at physical. And also too, with idol fans, they're not going to stream. So do you just completely ignore, do you completely ignore the part of the market that actually really does make the money? Because like, if we look at who makes the most money, it is like, this is the Oricon combined revenue. So King and Prince is number one at 21 billion yen and Snowman's at number two with 15 billion. Stone's at number three at 8 billion. 17 for 8 billion. 
Five Stray Kids, six billion. Six Naniwa Danchi, six billion. Seven Nokizaka, 46, six billion. Eight Yosobi, five billion. Miss Green Apple, five billion. Nine. And then 10 back number with four billion. So what we look at that is basically just like, yeah, you can be like really popular in streaming, but you're not going to make a lot of money. So do we ignore the real money makers that are really like prompting up the industry? just to go look at people that are digital or do we just like how do we look at both and also just like the idea of okay the idea of like quote unquote what's popular because when you look at the album the single and the digital charts right Mm -hmm. like digital download versus streaming yeah they all tell a very very different story yes so what are your thoughts Because obviously, well, now that his fave is an idol. Well, I just want to say, I just want to say, get this out of the way. Get this out of the way, because, like, this is, like, the elephant in the room. Um, For everyone that thought that this was going to be the end of Johnny's, the numbers just don't say it. Well, so I'm just going to say... Yeah, Starto, actually. Starto, Entertainmento. Yeah, the numbers. Yeah. Like, sure, like, public perception. Sure, like, some acting roles, some advertising roles. But the thing is, though, and I think I think this is something that, like, really does... It really is, like, a testament to the fans that, like, despite all this, like, the company made a ton of money. Okay, but it's also just, like, the reason why Ronald is finally asking this question and not 10 years ago when it was AKB48... Because AKB48, because... and I admit it. What? And so, and I didn't like, I didn't, yeah, as people, as things change, I'm allowed to change my mind. I didn't like Arashi, I admit that. I didn't like Kiss My Foot 2 and Nogi's Well, no, 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 so, like, we're talking about objective popularity. The main mm-hmm. reason why he's asking this now is because his fave is an idol. So, yes! Yeah, I admit but... that. Let's talk about popularity. <laughs> is, this, is this where we bring up uh, Patrick's favorite quotes about AKB? Yes, everything is AKB. Wait, I'll <laughs> say it. I can count down and I'll say it at once. We're yep. going to let Patrick go first and see what, like... Okay, I guess, like, I guess one... Of, okay, so I, I need to finish this first thought first and then we'll go to this. So we used to be able just to, like, look and see just, like, but thinking about the New York Times podcast, it really made me think of just like Rita, we were not able to look and see. <laughs> is like the question that the podcast brought up was just like, is the album dead? In the age of streaming, is the album dead? Because one thing I always asked was just like, wow, YoSOB can be number one for 21 weeks of idol, but like they can't move a hundred thousand copies of their album. Does no one care about, like, anything besides, like, the songs? And this reminds me of, like, Dead Grandma talking about just, like, well, no one in this era now is guaranteed to, like, have a string of number ones. And I was like, actually, that is completely false. There are more people who are having consistent strings of number ones now than ever before. It's just that they're all idol groups now. Whereas someone like USOP, they can have number 21, number 21 weeks of number one with idol, but then the single after that may like peter out number eight after two weeks. So it's just like with me, Yo Asobi doesn't have any consistency. It's like really high highs and the rest is just like mid. So when, like when I look at just like something like a Yo Asobi album coming in at number like four with like 80,000, I'm just like, 
it kind of sounds like a flop to me. But that's just my thoughts. But like, basically, it's popularity. He views Ikuta Lilas's voice as terrorism. No, 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 no. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. It's just like the question that's of just totally like. It. it makes me question like, do people like an act like yours? Like, because it's particularly Yoasobi, because someone like Back Number does well digitally and physically, as does official Higadendism. But like Yoasobi in particular, it's just that like, do people, it seems like people in their actual back numbers and official Higadendism songs, they are guaranteed to be hits. That's not the same with Yoasobi consistently. So for me, it feels like Yoasobi is. People will take the song and they like the song, but they're not actually interested in Yoasobi as an act. That's what I'm getting at. But then also just like the idea of like popularity overall and how do you gauge it in 2023. So we're going to start with Patrick. I know I just asked like a lot of different questions, but yeah. There's a lot to, lot to jump off from there. First off, I think it's funny that, you know, talking about popularity, this has been an issue in J-pop for what, a decade now? This is, uh, this is exactly how we first talked. So I want to say we years. first discussed about discussed this when Uza came out. Because I think you and Ian were like, Uza is not popular. And I was like, excuse me, we have <laughs> RIAJ numbers that completely disagree. And that was the first time I talked to you. And I forget when <laughs> Uzo was released. That was For like the record, I was also very adamant that Uzo was the best AKB song at that point. To the point <laughs> where people yelled at me on Tumblr saying, will you shut up about Uzo? Uzo was 2012. 2012. Yeah, so that's how old this conversation is, guys. This yeah. started me and Patrick's friendship. <laughs> We're here today because of this. Because of Uzo. So this is nothing new, the conversation we're having, but I do want to underline a very funny thing to me, and this is, I think, something that comes up on the New York Times podcast, which we've evoked a few times, which is like, this is the first year where the West actually was questioning this, and like, there were so many articles and podcasts this summer that was like, does the song of the summer exist anymore? Is a hit a real hit anymore? And this is where, to me, like, everything is AKB, truly blooms into into like a life's work because it's it's like yeah this is it you do popularity is so fragmented now that you can kind of read it how you want and it's all kind of true and now the world's caught up um the one thing i do kind of want to to start with yoasobi i'll say i do agree that they're a group where the songs are bigger than the overall band Though I would also kind of like note that that's in the history of music pretty common, Um, but whatever. But like Idol in particular is way bigger than Yoasobi. Idol is this phenomenon that's really like, especially when you're in Japan, like it's everywhere in a really weird way. Like not to get too much into my daily life, but like they play Idol at my daughter's uh, preschool. It's my daughter's favorite song now, by the way. Oh, no! Question, because you brought up your daughter before at preschool. Is Mm -hmm. this... My frame of reference for popular music. (laughs) Because the other time you brought her up in her preschool was with Paprika. 
So, which one would you say is bigger between the two? I would say Paprika was a little bigger because there was a specific dance that could be uh, translated to sort of sports festivals and culture festivals. Now, Idol was still used at culture festivals, but there's not a specific dance that you do. So I think that's the one difference when you're talking about sort of like toddler level popularity. <laughs> I think, I think, um, I think the Paprika was a real dance like. Dance has not entered the toddler segment. <laughs> not yet. I mean, I would be a real watch watching Oshinoko, but. <laughs> God, it's funny Multiple though, because there guys. is, there is like this debate with like on parent Twitter in Japan where it's like, you know, lots of teachers at element or elementary schools and like kindergartens and preschools, they play Idol because it's just a popular song, right? So then, and plus when you see like the visuals for Oshinoko, kids are like, oh, cool. It's like uh, Purikira or something. Yeah. Like, it's this really cutesy, like, oh, it must be a fun show. So then it's this weird dilemma of like, right, we can't let our kids watch this, right? <laughs> Wait, it's Usewa 2.0. Sort of, except <laughs> there was no anime that will you scar know? your child when you watch <laughs> this. Reminds me of also Hannah. What? Kim Kardashian letting her kids watch. Um. Oh yeah. So wait, Patrick, do you know about this, or did it is- reach? Okay, so Kim Kardashian, obviously, like as I mentioned before, right? Uh, the pandemic really increased the popularity of anime overseas, oh, and wow. one of the ways okay. that we knew that it was was because all of these celebrities were talking about letting their kids freaking watch certain anime. And like anime fans were just like, oh, like this is cool. And then we see the anime that they're letting their kids watch. And we were like, oh no, (laughs) this is not. What did North get to watch? Uh, He watched Attack on Titan at age eight. (laughs) And we were just like, what are you letting your children watch? How much do you think is Kanye allowing that? And how much is <laughs> Kim? That's my question. I think Kanye is definitely like anime. And he would be very adamant that he's like anime. Um, longer than I everyone. Would, I would not be surprised with Kanye because this was the man, the, the it pops up like at least like once a year. It's like Kanye West does Yoroshiku Onegajimasu. Yeah, in my like music station things. with teriyaki boys. Oh, God. I'm pretty sure he made her watch um, Akira, like, probably five times already. Oh, my oh, God. Absolutely, no. yeah. That's like, you have to do that weekly. No, you don't. New anime fans, protect your ears. But going back to Patrick yes. and the this idea, the questions I asked, the barrage. Go ahead. But actually, you know, that actually does tie to something that is telling, you know, because... I think people kind of default to, you know, uh, male idols and even female idols. You know, the, the album is kind of this, you know, it's a gift to fans. A lot of times it's a collection of singles. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems in some people's minds quite superfluous. But at the same time, when we're looking at the current landscape of J-pop, you know, the Yoasobis and even the autos of the world, it's like, you know, these songs are made for anime. So they are these one-off songs, right? 
Um, to the point where a song like Idol is actually name-dropping characters from the series, which is actually pretty bewildering when you think about it. Like if, I don't know, the biggest song in America was referencing Succession or something. <laughs> like name-dropping whoever's yeah, yeah, yeah. Daenerys like, in the middle of a song. <laughs> I mean, that'd be good. But, but I do think when you look at someone like Yosogi, like when they put out these albums, they do feel kind of like an afterthought to them because they're not really like, the only thing that ties them together is the loose concept of, what is it, quote unquote, music from stories, whatever Yosogi's yeah. mm-hmm. uh, for, formative mission statement was and that's evolved from like online short fiction to big old fantasy anime to like actual novels which i have i will admit to reading a bunch of them they are very well written they're pretty good let's go i'll check it out (laughs) so yes but yeah that to me is kind of the interesting thing about now and when you talk about is the album dead is the album still relevant I do think for a group like Yoasobi, who took so long to even release an album physically, they were very digital first, which was very uh, jarring for the J-pop industry at the time. Like, I don't know. I don't think they're as worried about that because to them, every song is this self-contained theme thing. Mm -hmm. Otto's kind of similar. I think her first album was actually pretty, like, cohesive and actually did have kind of a mission to it. It sold a lot, have, too. Is it true? But then you have something like the One Piece soundtrack, where it's like, it's not the biggest <laughs> songs, but it's literally just the One Piece soundtrack, which is great, but it's not like a statement of any sort. So I do think, again, it's just further fracturing, where for certain artists, like the album is just something, whether they're idols or a band, it's just something you kind of, you feel like you have to put out, right? I guess because, like, you know, me being, like, on, like, forums and, like, stan Twitter for, like, decades at this point, like, there's this thing that was, like, often said disparagingly about certain artists. Like, I just, like, the main one I want to think of is Rihanna, where it's like, oh, she's a singles act. Mm." And, like, when I think of Yoasobi, I think of, like, oh, they're a singles artist. Hmm. It's kind of just like a kind of like lesser than position. But then because it was like always this thinking of just like, oh, if you can sell like a lot of albums, you're like a more serious act. But like now we see that like not even the quote unquote serious acts are like selling albums because like no one's buying them. Maybe that's just something I just think, you know, coming from like this like. From angry. Well, that's also because you are a reforming, uh, you are a anti-idol fan on probation. <laughs> I feel like... Oh. But row, 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 you go. Like, um, I, I get the tendency to really, like, you know, frame uh, pop albums as, like, a capital A album. And then, you know, that's, like, the work of, like, optimism at large, you know. And then I really like, get that, like, listening to albums top to bottom as, like, a very cohesive like, pro- project. But I think historically, like, you know, par- uh, J-pop in particular, it's really, like Patrick mentioned, it's just, like, coupled together singles or 
in the sense that like the singles have been building for at least two three years maybe and then and then like kind of stitch it together with a couple new stuff and then that there you go that's the album i feel like the marketing for j-pop albums have been kind of like this in general so you know it's nothing new per se to like maybe not to pin them solely as a singles artist but like you know at least if considering the quality it's just it seems like you know a bunch of singles collections like well that's kind of i don't think the market's like um very like intention like the goal here is to really do a top-down like art here it's mostly like really oh how do we package the momentum of the singles into something Mm -hmm. that they can actually take home now you know and then you can also say this with like k-pop too it's like Mm -hmm. the title track is so big it's it's the it's the hook to the mini album or the actual like full-length album but really it's like you know it's I think it's very frequent that it's very paint by numbers in a sense like oh there is a slow number at the end there mm-hmm. is a beside that everyone's very like really excited about hopefully this was the title track why it wasn't this and it's like you know something that's very stitched together around the title track really so i don't think it's really new per se that j like i think industry in general j-pop has been the more of a singles focused in a sense and then yeah I mean, like, I get that, but, like, the thing is, though, is that it seems just, like, like, I think one question I was asking is just, like, where did everyone go that isn't a male idol fan that, like, no one really sold an album unless you were a male idol this year? Because I was looking, and the first female act to actually come in on the album's chart was Niju at number 23, unless you count Kisoku Band at number 12, I think. Okay, so this we is do where... for the record, by the way. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, first of all, Kisoku Band is a is a good group, and regardless of what the Japanese academics say, they are absolutely an idol group. Um, but that is an aside. Uh, I think there's two responses that I have to that, and Ronald has heard both of these before. Like, first off. Buying albums is no longer, like, it's not really what you do because you're actually listening to the music. So the idea that, like, an albums act is, quote-unquote, like, more serious is kind of funny to me on its premise. Because you're just like, well, like, you're literally talking about a bunch of fans buying an album and chucking them into their bin, right? Wherever they put their collection. So that, to me, is already really, it's very funny. Um, but then there's also just the fact that, like, overall, uh, you have, when you go back into the history of who was making albums when, the idea of an album being a cohesive thought was not always the case. I can tell you, as somebody who worked at the back office, of like these agencies and doing a lot of the accounting like 99% of the time when somebody was releasing an album the conversation was usually okay so you have a contractual obligation to release this much stuff the reason is because like we really need you to release an album so we can make our money back because albums sell for a higher price um that was the primary reason for the album's existence. Some people took this idea and ran with it and like 
created very, very nice, cohesive thoughts. Other people, not so much. Uh, I don't think they either like cared about it or whatever, but fundamentally it was just kind of like the album exists uh, for whatever reason. And, you know, like we'll, we'll write it to fulfill our contractual obligation, but otherwise we don't care. Um, so I think the idea that like you would separate the two is kind of funny to me, knowing that that's 99% of the conversation. Right. So that's actually something that was addressed in that podcast I was speaking of, because they were talking about how like back in like, I guess like the forties, not forties, like the fifties and the sixties, you had like the 45s and like those like like seven inch singles whatever and they said that like the person that came around that really like made this idea of an album as like a cohesive artistic statement would be bob dylan in the 60s mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so like so many artists like they thought of like actual like the actual idea of being like a musical artist as someone that like goes and creates an album rather than just like as beyonce said quick little singles um so I guess that's like something that like I think about in the realm of things because like I don't mean to like put this Western focus on like Japanese music, but like it's kind of just like the acts that you think would be the quick little singles acts are like idols essentially is what some people would think of them as. They're actually the ones that sell the most albums. So it's kind of like and it just brings me back because I was like thinking about Ryuji Sakamoto. And the interview he did with the Japan Times about like a decade ago when someone asked him just like, what advice do you have for young artists today? And he was like, don't do it. You don't. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just like thought of that. And I just like think about just like if you join Johnny's Starto, sorry, Starto Entertainment or you join like a 48 or 46 group, like you have an opportunity to like to have like a nice. Well, if you're in Starto, you're going to have like a very nice life. If you are in a, another idol group, like a higher end one. You could have a nice life, but like if you are like in a band, it's just like how do you keep going when all the things that like when you look at the bands that like you were influenced by, like back when you were like a teenager, those bands often like were able to sell an album and like to tour and to make money and like they reach a level of popularity that like you can't really reach today because the apparatus and the selling structure that was available to make you money back then doesn't exist today. I think that's like one of the things that I think about too. I mean, is that true? I oh. think it's true because like if we have like the numbers of what the, the revenue this music is bringing in and it's not good for anyone but idols. I think that's something I think about. I mean, I, I think I, that, that was a nonsensical statement. That's something I think about. <laughs> well, I think, Patrick, you were going to say something. Yeah, I have two kind of, well, they're, they kind of interconnect. So you had asked earlier, you know, outside of these male idol fans, like, where are listeners? Where are they? We've actually answered that question throughout this podcast. They're on TikTok. They're watching anime, they're using YouTube and maybe streaming sites like Spotify or Apple Music. There's just kind of a bigger world of music available to them. Like go down a level to sort of the more nerdier music folks like myself, I suppose, and was like, we're on Bandcamp, we're 
going through like Twitter accounts or rate your music or whatever. So there's just more things to catch your attention. And, you know, fandom's hard to build, you know. It's something I think boy groups are really good at, and that's why they're as popular as they are. But I do think something that is possible with, honestly, any band or artist, but is especially true of Japanese artists, excuse me, is, like, I think it is possible for a smaller indie or indie-ish artist to actually have a sustainable fan base. Yeah. Um, I think you can see that with artists who, you know, aren't on major labels, but who have developed this kind of, like, rabid following abroad, who have toured this year, and are kind of a representative. (laughs) Or someone like Harune Muri or Ichiko Alba. These are artists who have developed both critical praise, which I think is something boy bands have zero of in the grand scheme of things. Nobody's writing (laughs) glowing articles about the music of Snowman, whether they deserve it or not. Um, But, you know, these artists have critical acclaim and also they do have a sort of smaller level of that same devotion that fans have. And they'll never have the numbers, you know, that'll make you go like, ooh, chart topper, Harune Muri. But she can build a career that's very healthy and allow her to pursue the ideas she wants to. And I think that's something that I appreciate about Japanese music and how it travels in the world is that, you know, because it's kind of so all over the place, artists like her or just so many others throughout history can just keep doing that and, you know, be artistically fulfilling, artistically fulfilled, I should say. Not to interrupt you, but like you interviewed somebody this year who um, I just thought of when you were speaking about, which would be Lamp. Yep. Can you, because I was actually looking, I did, Spotify released their top, they broke it down by like um, worldwide by decade. The most played Japanese songs worldwide by decade. So from like 70s, 80s and forward. And I believe this was like for the 2000s that three of the most popular songs, no, not 2000s. I think it was the 2000s. I want to say 2000s. Okay. I believe it was 2000s. It's possible, yeah. It yeah. That's when they started. Yeah. So I was looking at that and Hannah was asking, I believe, just like, how did that happen? <laughs> well, they're a perfect example of this in action. This is a... Mm-hmm like indie trio that formed in the year 2000 in around Tokyo in the Kanto area. And they just make kind of like, I guess an easy way to describe it is folk pop, but it's drawing from a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. It's drawing from sixties rock, eighties bossa nova. Um, They love the beach boys. So it's this weird kind of like drawing from history and trying to uh, reformat it for modern times they're actually very close to Shibuya K in my mind, but that's a whole nother discussion for a much <laughs> dorkier podcast. Um, but they've just been doing their thing for over 20 years now. And just over that time, people abroad found them and they just, you know, if you go on the lamp Reddit, there are people who are so dedicated to this band. Like people will get tattoos of their album art and like, there's something about their music, music that really darlings. <laughs> they the beautiful thing. Do you know and what like, it reminds me of a bit? Mm-hmm. Fishmans. Well, no, that's a another perfect example of a group that like 
at some point just developed this really fanatical following abroad. And the rate your music like, crowd. The rate your music crowd. And it's something you also see with the city pop boom from a few years ago, which is quite like quite it predicted a lot of things that happened. Um especially when it comes to the industry, because that's when the Japanese music industry really was like, oh, people like Japanese music abroad. <laughs> that's interesting. And like learning what a TikTok is. But <laughs> yeah, no, there's, and that's kind of what I, to kind of like go back to that point. And one of the things I find interesting about 2023 is usually there is a divide between what, you know, in general, Western listeners like, and then what Japanese listeners like. There's still a bit of that. You know, I don't think there's a rate your music crowd for King and Prince. Though if there is, I'd like to or see Yo them. <laughs> but no, Yoa Sobi at least has Idol. And it does have like a little bit more of a reach. You know, you see these memes about like uh, me and the boys like listening to the Japanese song. But we don't know the sad lyrics. And it's like, oh, okay, funny. That is, that's the anime TikTok people. <laughs> Okay, that's a whole other world, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah but, but they like, are able to kind of break through a little bit, at least. It's funny that, like, you bring that up, Patrick, because I was just, like, looking to see, like, what decade it was, and you were right, it was the 2000s, because, like, the most played Japanese songs overseas from the 2000s, number one, Patrick, you know what it is. Well, it's, I figured it was actually probably the top five. It's got to be... It's got to be Tokyo Drift, right? Tokyo Drift is number one, like the eternal number one well, in the 2000s. It's the song of the century. Yeah, so like it's Teriyaki Boys, then Ikimonogakari, then Lamp, then Joe Hisaishi, and then Lamp again. That's insane, actually. Which Ikimonogakari song? Bluebird. Shout? Okay, Bluebird. Okay, okay. It's a this... Naruto opening. Ah, <laughs> uh, thank you. Okay. But this now, this is a blind spot for me, so... But you were you. talking about just, like, um, the separation between international and domestic. And so Spotify, I know Spotify is not the biggest streaming service yeah, yeah. in Japan, but, like, it is interesting. They actually do a list of just, like, domestic and international. So for domestic, the most played were Miss Green Apple, Bondi, Yoasobi, Back Number, Official Higedandism, BTS, Yuri, Yunezu Kinshi, Ado Aimyon. And but if then, you look at this year's overseas list, it's the overseas list identical. Is somewhat. The overseas list is Yoasobi, Fujikaze, XG, Yunezu Kinshi, Joe Hisaishi, Ado, Radwimps, Eve, One OK Rock, Lisa. My people. Hannah's list. Hannah's playlist. Literally my playlist. You hate Fujikaze. I hate Fujikaze. But oh wow, okay. He's he's too like uh how do I put it? Like he very much plays on like these stereotypes that I'm very uncomfortable with. But otherwise, it's my people. <laughs> but yeah, what you were saying is that like I do understand what you're saying now. It does make sense. And I think that, like, personally, personally, I think that just, like, if we're going to go with, like, a new-ish band that, like, I think someone that I'm pushing for Rachel Music, like, um, fame is my number one album of the year. But we'll talk about that later on. Later on. Because it's kind of, like, the same vein. But... Um kind of funny, speaking about, like, the, the diehard 
uh, crowd. For me, the biggest one are like all of the indie V singers. Speaking of a very, very interesting collab this year, um, all of the all the V singers that have like a larger crowd overseas than they actually do in Japan. And like number one chief among them used to be Hall Life. I don't know when it actually changed, but it used to be the case that Hall Life was not that popular within Japan. Although overseas, they were just like the biggest things in sliced bread. So, so you see that all the time. So I think that. I think this was like listening for our trends section of our outline, but like speaking of like Spotify in particular, Patrick, you wrote an article about something in regards to Spotify this summer, which would be Gotcha Pop. Oh gosh. You said the magic words I was waiting for. So now it's time we talk about Gotcha Pop. Well, it's actually a good, it's a good segue from where we were at talking about sort of how fragmented Japanese music is. Because Gacha Pop is Spotify Japan, at least realizing that's how Japanese music travels in the world, and being like, hey, instead of like instead of tearing our hair out about how do we make these artists capital A artists, what if we just celebrate the fact that you know Japanese music is this weird, like all over the place collection of hits from all over, from every corner of anime to throwback pop to um weird hyper pop to like rap question mark <laughs> to vtubers vtubers are in there so uh gotcha pop was launched in the summer by spotify japan and it takes its name from the popular gotcha toy machines that most people probably know from like video games that take all their money um and the idea is you're supposed to just randomly choose a song or put it on shuffle and see what you find, see what you like. And when you actually like get into the guts of the gotcha pop playlist, it's so like, I love whoever puts it together. It's a dream to interview them. just because you have all the obvious big hits, your Yoasobis, your autos, your Travis Japans, your XGs. But then like you start getting into real like, Patrick Core. <laughs> I'm looking at it right <laughs> now, and Lamp is on here. Lamp's a big one. Lamp's been there from the start. You have Asaki. Yama, Imase, Natori. I believe at times they've had Harune Muru's been on there. Mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. kinds of Vocaloid artists. We haven't oh, even talked about how... Oh, Kafu. <laughs> shout out Kafu. Uh, if you get my emails, thank you so much. Um... Uh, what else? We haven't even talked about how there was a Vocaloid song in a Marvel movie this year, which was one of the weirder developments. Wait, there That's... is? What? Yeah, do you not know? That's, um, oh, shoot, why am I blanking on it? I bet it's on Gotcha Pop, actually. So, in Guardians of the Galaxy 3, um, there's an, oh, whoa. Well, I probably ignored it because I was too busy fighting for Hudson and Miko tickets for next year. <laughs> Um, it was a year-long, year-long effort. Yes, like literally trying to get tickets to freaking. Oh, my favorite song, Yuko Peace Kill Fu All Back. <laughs> that is there. there you go. So yeah, but then you also have a Vocaloid song like um, 
E-H-A-M-I-C's, uh, Coin No Carnival, uh, which is this like weird dog song using Katsune Miku's vocals. That was in like Guardians of the Galaxy, and that's why it's on Gotcha Pop. It's because it's one of the weird ways it's been distributed in the world. Because <laughs> you can just really get everything. I mean, they have like, I think this is one of Carrie's like better recent songs, but Dodonpa. Mm-hmm. For yep, candy on here. And great that's song, like one super great song, but it's just like one of the weirdest things that she's released, which is why it's so Yeah, weird. it's beautiful. You get things like Chai, of course, who are kind of these critically acclaimed, a critically acclaimed group abroad. You have Otoboke Beaver, who are another fantastic example. They're opening for the Red Hot Chili Peppers now. Really bath, like great for them. I'm glad they did that. Like going through it, it's this really like, it's not just about quote-unquote J-pop. It's covering the full range of Japanese music. At other times this year, they've had lots of, like, indie rappers. They've had people like um, Toji or um, just all kinds of, like, yeah, like, hyper-pop kids who, in another time, would be nowhere near the Japanese mainstream. But on a playlist like this, they can exist alongside Radwimps or Yoasobi. And I love that they figured out this kind of like, you know, this is actually what makes Japanese music special in, in the current global world. And, you know, like, let's celebrate that. Let's stop trying to be cohesive and have like this, like, I don't want to bring K-pop into this, but like K-pop has like an image, like a, 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 um, a not, not a, I want to say like a motif, like K-pop kind of has like a motif. And, like, mm-hmm. I think that for so long, Japan has, like, looked at that and tried to figure out, like, well, how, what is our motif? And they realized there is no motif. Just, like, put whatever out there now, which is what Gotcha Pop is. I mean, the biggest that problem is, is, yeah. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, the biggest problem for a long time was, oh, what's our motif? Can we just make it like K-pop? <laughs> and, like, <laughs> yeah. Kind of like, well, no. Which is, like, and that's a thing. That's why... I think, like, this renewed cooperation between the countries is so great to me. Because, like, K-pop themselves is just, like, we have no motif. Who cares? Like, do whatever you want. And, like, you have a million fans who are just... If you put farts in a can, they'll buy it. Right? Just tell them it's from their bias. Stray kids. I know, because I buy it. Right? Like... Did I listen to Kuzuwa's album from last year? Yes, exactly once. That's how I knew. Man, if you weren't my Oshi, I would not listen to this. But, like, it's one of those things where, like, you can put out whatever because you have a diehard fan base. And when it comes to, like, Gacha Pop, it's just, like, all these kids being like, I love anime. Let me listen to this playlist that definitely has a bunch of these anime songs. Oh, and there's, like, a bunch of other cool things, too. By the way, there's literally no consistency to anime music. So this is great. (laughs) And then they may fall into something that's, like, Ronaldcore. We hate Ronaldcore. Ronaldcore is amazing. Shut up, misogynist. Oh. Anyways. (laughs) Please. Um, So, what is our next topic? So, following up on that, you gotta talk about the Idol Frontiers. Okay, the Idol Wars. There are wars? 
Well, there were wars on my territory. I don't know about you. <laughs> there was a war against the territory on my side, but we'll talk about that later. Well, we'll split it into the boys, the girls, and then the girls with like a little asterisk to suggest that we're talking about more than just 3D girls. Oh, so I'll let you go first. Okay. So, like, we're going to talk about the asterisk. So, we are talking about, like, I want to say, I don't remember when EGM was. I think it was, like, a week ago, two weeks ago. Um, but essentially, it was the best summation of what female idols are today. Wait, Patrick, were you able to either go or witness a snippet of this amazingness? I have not. It happened in a busy period, so please catch me up. So the powers that be decided to combine the monster that is Idolmaster and the monster that is Love Live and hold a joint live between both of them and promote Good it God. using VTubers. <laughs> the greatest collab of the year. Yeah, of the century. I, I literally heard what happened on days one and two and just cried a little bit in my bedroom being like i should have been in japan (laughs) but essentially like it to me kind of wrapped up what i think what girl group idols look like in 2023 which is a lot of them are extremely anime adjacent in some way shape or form i mean sure you still have like the 3d idols like you know, Nokizaka, and you still have AKB48 turning on. But more and more, the top players are all these, like, Annie song people. And you just have this massive, I don't want to even call it, like, a fight, but this recognition that we are monsters. So, Ro, I dragged you into this nonsense a couple years ago. How are you enjoying your stay? <laughs> I mean... That that's that's funny you bring it up because I feel like I was reflecting uh this year about like oh like I haven't really got into idols like you know in the sense of like I know every member of this certain group really uh find you know like update myself with every media they do and I realize it's like oh that actually has been taken over by the Bang Dream franchise yes <laughs> um, which it has I feel I feel like I express this in a different podcast of Nazi Japan but it's like it has really given me took like a rabbit hole starting from Aimi who has actually really spawned the whole its franchise but. Mm-hmm. Really, it's like you follow one voice actors and they work with five. And it's like there was franchises like Uma Musume or like Love Live as um, an idol master as Aimi is part of. And it's like mm-hmm. you like, oh, I know this one. I know that one. I know that one, too. And it's like, oh, I'm making like a full 50 song, a full Annie song list of just <laughs> voice actresses. So, yeah. So it's like a great... Um, it's just like yeah just a great like idol adjacent in a way because it's mm-hmm. like it's in a sense it's like you know you have your voice actresses but like she has music career she has a theater career she has like these adjacent stuff that's like not you know anime is not like the full thing anymore and i like noted this in the um like the end of year 50 song list that i made but it's like wow like voice actors has to be like influencers now they have to keep up with memes they have to keep up with tiktok trends it's like wow they have such a busy life to like 
really pop off their really just like their personality their like to make it to a brand so yeah it's just like a crazy rabbit hole and it's like if you are like already susceptible to idols it's like you're gonna be in for a ride especially because so many of the newer idols now like a ton of them are just like either they're gonna be like hollow life and they're already influencers in the get-go right they're basically saying oh like sashi tried making an idol group earlier this year with not uh what was it nabot something uh with a couple of members or you have of course like hollow life and then or the squeen the squeenix like girls group or you have a group like equal love which as much as I know it pisses my Annie song friends off, they are still a voice actress idol group. <laughs> yeah, that's like something I linger on. It's like, wait, that is a weird hook. Like, I they're not really anime just as like, you know, like 22 equals 7 and 22 mm-hmm, over mm-hmm. 7 and stuff like that. But they're supposed to, to be like voice actors. Uh-huh. I don't mean to interject either, but like speaking of equal loves, it reminds me of that really interesting article you put out this year, excuse me, where you talked about how just like there's this perception that like female idol groups have primarily male fan bases, but with equal loves and a lot of the newer groups in particular, you pointed out that they actually have primarily female fan bases. Yes. Yeah. Like, I think it's just because um, in a very real way, right, like the idea of Oshikatsu has become extremely gendered. In that, like, a lot of the guys, I want to say, actually fled for VTubers. Um, most of the guys are either in the Hololive fan base, or they're in the Love Live or IMAS ones, or they're watching people like my Nijisanji Japan Oshi, like Kuzula and stuff. And they're not really concerned with idols anymore. And so a lot of these, like, up-and-coming idols all have female fan bases. So, like, my two big ones are Equal Love and Femme Fatale. And one of my friends actually showed me a photo of one of the solo members, Sakina's, like, solo live. And he's like, look, that's me in the middle. And I'm like, yeah, I can tell it's you because you're the one guy in a crowd of, like, 150 women. I feel like those groups, like, you know, they have their YouTube channels and, like, social media channels and stuff like that. But, like, all what they put out there is really catered to women. And it's, like, Mm -hmm. they directly ask for ideas, like, oh, what do you want me to put on YouTube? And it's, like, a lot of, like, cosmetic, like, recommendations and stuff like that. And it's, like, really... The power of makeup influencers. Yeah, yeah, basically. uh, They're, like, auditioning for, like, their promotions. But it's, like, really, they ask what they want. And it's, like, really feedback from their female fans that, like, they put back into it. It's, like, a whole cycle. So it's, like, yeah, they're really catering to their, like, female fans. Like, I don't want to say that this is the entirety of 3D girl groups right now. Because that's definitely not true. Like, Nogizaka still has a very, very healthy male fan base. Same with Sakurazaka. Same... Like, I know Hello Project has, like, a slightly majority female fan base on Joy Sound, but you go to you go to any of their events or, like, 
you look at like their listening statistics, it's still going to be predominantly men. So there's still like a healthy male fan base there. I mean, like you check out like Tiff's like audience. It's like very dominantly male. (laughs) It's very like sausage fest. There's a reason why the guards there just do not care and will like throw you into the ground. It's because it's mostly men. You don't really need to care. That is a sexist stereotype, but we can unpack that another day. Um, But yeah, like, I think there's just more of a catering to the idea that, like, female fans can stand whatever. And it's more, I actually want to say it's even more acceptable in Japan than internationally to jump from, like, a K-pop live and then change your clothes really quickly and run off to the nearest, like, Checky Bupan with your favorite Chika Idol member. Right, like that's super acceptable over there, in a way that is not overseas. Hmm. So we did asterisk girls, and we did regular girls. So I guess is it time for boys? Well, you're just happy that we can talk about that one. No, because you know what, I actually do want to talk about the other ones too. Oh. Yeah, because the thing is, though, is if you remember correctly, my trend from last year was this rising tide of boy bands. And so basically, this is going to serve as like a bit of a report card of how those groups are doing. So if you remember last year, we're going to work our way up to like the big one. So I was like, I look at the numbers because like the thing is, so it's the best way to gauge these things is looking at the numbers because these groups, they don't do digital. I mean, they, some of them release digitally, but like that, that's not where the people are actually supporting them. But one thing I found really interesting was that I and I, the second season of Produce Japan 101, for some reason, over the course of the past year, their numbers have fallen 40%. They used to be able to do half a million with every release, and now they're doing like 300,000 with every release, which I find very interesting. And I ask around, and no one can seem to figure out why. But then again, you're surrounded by Johnny's fans. No, because I actually do go and hunt these people down. I mean, oh, that sounds bad. I do like (laughs) I do do look around and like ask their fans on Twitter, just like, oh, like, do you know why this is happening? Um, JL1 is still, they're still successful. They're like holding their own. Um, LDH, oh God, LDH. They, they put out, I believe, five new groups this year. And I think they can, they put out five new groups this year. They put three out on the same day. And like, they, they did okay. They did like, 80,000 but like it's kind of just like why do you guys keep throwing everything at the wall and like nothing is sticking but also too um and Patrick actually wrote about this a bit but like there actually was like a real chart battle this year which would have been sexy zone versus the rampage heavyweight contest 16 boosters so oh, man, yeah, boosters. it was cream, cream versus 16 boosters. 
And I just remember my ooms being just like, Creamer Nation, we have to like keep buying. <laughs> and like it was getting okay. So the reason why it was an actual chart battle, because like no one thought it was gonna be a chart battle because like it's Japan. There are no chart battles. Everyone just pretty much says, like, you release this week, we'll release the next week. <laughs> um Yeah. So basically the rampage decided that they wanted to do meet and greets. So their numbers jumped. And then basically sexy zone was just like, we are about to lose our number one streak. Um, yeah, we need to fix this. So like, I believe that they actually had like a fan meeting, like on the Sunday of the week to actually get right ahead of the rampage. But it's just funny because like when this whole thing was happening, I was thinking of just like how some people were outraged when Sexy Zone broke Mr. Children's number one single streak. And that was like, oh, God, like, Patrick, do you remember that? It was like it was definitely like over a decade ago. I threw a party. Yeah. <laughs> you threw a party. I really don't like Mr. Children. So for me, that was a moment of celebration. <laughs> Why Ooh, don't you like Mr. Facts. Children? Oh, oh man. They're so soulless. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> this is getting too real. The, the, to sum it up, this is a story, like, this is something that's stuck with me for a long time. I saw Mr. Children perform at Summer Sonic, like, six, six years ago, seven years ago. And, you know, it was really popular. Their fans are very passionate, and that's really beautiful to see. And they were performing one of their songs and midway through the power went out. So like all of the band's sound vanished and you know, you can't hear anything, but the fans in like one of the most touching moments of the festival, they started singing the lyrics that would have followed and they finished the song for Mr. Children. And it was like, really, that's like what music's about. That's beautiful. Mr. Children was like, all right, let's do it again. <laughs> and it was just like, it was this soulless moment where it's like, oh, okay, you guys are just like the most boring band on the planet. We're just like, okay, we have to make sure everything's perfect. And like, you had this gorgeous moment that you ruined because you had to feel like you had delivered the metaphor-heavy lyrics yourself. I don't like them. They're a very boring arena rock band. Sexy Zone is significantly better than Mr. Children. And I that don't say that is, lightly. That and that is our clip that we are going to use. For the podcast, <laughs> that is the, sexy zone is better than Mr. Children. Sexy zone uh, is better than Mr. Children. This is going to be like when the back number fans came to my uh, newsletter and said, "You're not smart enough to understand back number." No, wait, 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 wait! When was this? Explain this. This, this was a uh, no. Why are we turning this into Patrick hates bad Japanese bands? Um, <laughs> that's a quote too, actually. Um, now this is a few months ago. I think I'd written disparagingly about back number, probably on the like Oricon section of my newsletter. Just like, ugh, another back number song. And somebody in the comments, you can hunt it down, I'm sure, was just like, "You are so stupid." Like, you just don't understand. You're clearly not smart enough to understand their lyrics. Uh, biased, uh, bad reporter, uh, stuff like that. I'm trying to find it. <laughs> um, so funny. I think my favorite quote from you this year about a band would have to be, um, they have the coolness of a youth pastor. Oh, my, uh, my new least favorite band in Japan. Oh, I you always have one. 
I I I will say that like when I was there and they had that damn Coke commercial with Magic playing, oh, I was like, get this off my TV. Like I, I do solidarity. I do not like Miss Green Apple. I think they're corny. The only song that was good is the one they did with Otto. Yeah, that's fair. I agree because Otto's involved. So but yeah, that's that's another one. But the Mrs. Great Appleheads haven't found me yet, at least. So, but maybe this podcast will. They have to like Appleheads. Yeah, the Appleheads. Appleheads. <laughs> their stand name. <laughs> well, there's yeah, a little bit a of big head. Some, some free hey, consulting for you. I like worship music for the record, if only because I am in charge of media, and through sheer repetitive exposure i have come to appreciate why it's okay yeah but what happens when it's bad because mrs green apples making it i actually don't know because i only listen to the same three songs that my church picks every sunday (laughs) so until they put dance hall into rotation all i can think of when i think of them is like hee hoo or something like that. Is that how the song goes? It's close enough. Um, but I mean, like, so I talked about LDH. Oh, but then again, okay. But it's very fitting that a conversation about LDH was eventually overshadowed by something more interesting. <laughs> unfortunately, oh, LDH oh, does not have oh, any juice. It's true. Do you guys remember SG5? Do you remember that? I actually brought them up the other day. I brought oh, okay. them Hannah, just like, what happened to SG5? They're great. Firetruck, banger. <laughs> Firetruck's pretty good. It's it's solid, but... God, but, but LDH um, is so interesting because it's like, they, they are trying so hard. Like, jokes aside, like, LDH so, actually is doing interesting things. I Yeah, okay. So, like, I was... I wanted to ask, because you brought up LDH via Rampage, so I was just, like, wondering what you guys thought about the output this year. Um, I have my own thoughts, but... Um, I did listen to, like, the JP the Wavy song, and I was just like, is there, like, a Wavy-only version of this? (laughs) (laughs) What I respect about LDH in 2023 is, and we talked about this earlier when we were talking about Asia, LDH is very proactive about Thailand, I believe they've taken they've taken their group Psychic Fever, and I think they have to live in Thailand to try to like develop a Thai following. Oh God! And they like they collaborate with um oh shoot what is it I forget the name of the channel but it's one of the biggest rap like channels in Thailand. So is they're that doing why they song... have to collab. Yeah, exactly because there's some kind of like they ship Psychic Fever there, yeah. <laughs> and it's like they have a kind of uh, agreement with them. And but I respect that they're trying to actually explore that market and see what's possible. Um, I yeah. have a story about LDH in Thailand, but I just want to say really quick about the rampage. Um, mm-hmm. The rampage. The, um, after that whole thing, their numbers did fall back to where they normally were. And if you actually go on Twitter today, the rampage is like making the rounds in J-pop Twitter um, because now oh, no. they're being, now they're being <laughs> accused of being Nazis. <laughs> like I wake up today and it's just like. J-pop boy group, the Rampage, Nazis salute. And I'm like, and I look, and I said this before we started this recording, just like the way you look at that tweet, 
it's like as if like they were trying to hashtag the tweet to get it to trend and then forgot the hashtags. <laughs> oh lord. But um, it's really funny because you were talking about Japan, um, LDH in Thailand because they sent the rampage to Japan Expo in Thailand in Bangkok, <laughs> and so I remember posting an article about Snowman being there. And the Rampage fans got very mad at my article. And they were just like, why didn't you post about the Rampage? The Rampage were there too. And I was like, well, here's a question for you. Did LDH send me an email that had a zip file with like photos and video and statements from the boys? No, they didn't. So why am I not going to post the content that's actually like given to me? Like... And this is the issue. This is the issue that I say. And like Unseen Japan got very mad about this because I said this on Twitter. And he was like, why would you say this? And I was like, because it's true. Out of these groups, the one that actually is like actually reaching out to the international realm as far as media goes is Starto. So I guess it's time that we start. Oh, oh. So, um, if you guys did not, (laughs) if you guys did not listen to the podcast I released earlier this week, it is me and some Starto fans just talking about the year that was. Um, So, most of that it will include the Starto content, but like, um, yeah. So basically, quick question for you guys: I guess we might as well go there. When did everyone first hear about the allegations? Out of curiosity. Oh, I mean, whenever I started following J-pop, so probably 2009. I mean, Mm -hmm. honestly, it was already all over the internet back then. Yeah, it was all over when I started, like, 20 years ago. Hannah? So, I started as a morning Musume fan. And was on Ayumi Hamasaki Sekai. Oh, Two thousand one? I don't I literally don't remember. But oh my gosh, it had to have been I actually don't remember a time I didn't know. Yeah. Like yeah, like I it must have just been assumed knowledge. Like you had to have known the accusations. It's J pop one oh one as I call it. Yeah. Um Rio, what did you when did you first find out about it? I mean, like, I think it's with Hannah, it's like, assume knowledge, you don't really say it, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it's like implied, but like, really, really came to the forefront, really, like, um, like, at the end of the end of the 2010s, really, for me, but like, really, it's, I think it's always been like, implied. Yeah, it was just like, so that's why I found everything this year to be so stupid. Um, because I remember watching, I remember watching a press conference and this guy got up there and he was like, I work for Asayi Shimbun. I started working for the newspaper in the 1980s and the later half. I knew nothing about these allegations. And I'm like, you liar. Like, well, okay. So here's the thing. You'll notice Ro and I both said we, we assumed everyone knew. Right. Yeah. It was just an assumption that, like, 
everyone knew about this and you were kind of silly if you didn't know. Which means if you weren't in one of like the three conversations per year, I would say, like where it kind of came up, um it just uh it just never got talked about. <laughs> mm. So basically long story short is that this is the year that like basically this all came to a head the documentary came out then Koan Okamoto had his press conference and then Julie came out Julie Fujishima former president came out and said what she had to say and then they had the press conferences and they decided that they were basically scrapping some of the top people in the company bringing in new people um Changing the name of the company, changing all the branding away from Jay, Johnny's, all that, to Starto Entertainment. And um, I think one of the things is, is that people were looking at this as like, and, I, and Patrick wrote about this. Patrick wrote about this extensively. And he was just like, for everyone thinking, okay, I, this is me doing Patrick's voice right now. Um, for everyone thinking that this is going to be the end of the company, mm, I'm not so sure on that. Delete this. <laughs> Delete that voice. It was too real. It was really good. Um, but yeah, I think that is true. I think. I think first off, we should probably set the stage a little bit for people who maybe. I think anyone listening to this probably knows. But a quick overview: um, the founder of the company formerly known as Johnny and Associates, Johnny Kitagawa was for decades accused of sexually abusing and assaulting uh, young male trainees within his company, commonly known as Johnny's Juniors. And this year it kind of finally boiled over, despite the fact for decades this was reported on and rumored about all over media and the internet. But yeah, it's interesting looking at this, which is, I do think it's important to note the biggest entertainment story of the year in Japan. I mean, this dominated coverage in the Japanese market and, you know, got a lot of people talking about entertainment and the role of media in covering entertainment Mm -hmm. and abuse in general. Patrick. So it was, yeah. I remember like when you were like tweeting about this, when it was happening, because you were tweeting the press conference as it was happening. And I was watching on my phone because like I was in Mexico and you were just like, the coverage, this is on every channel right now. He, you were like, I haven't seen anything get this much like widespread coverage since Shinzo Abe was assassinated. <laughs> this is actually probably true. Um, just to be clear, which press conference was that? The first one where bunch. Julie resigned okay, and one. said everything was true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one was massive. That was all over every channel. Um, and yeah, just... As this story has developed, you know, I do think a narrative that has appeared, and I think this underlines the tension between, you know, entertain people who follow Japanese entertainment slash music, and people who, you know, are more like straightforward journalists, you know, news reporters and so forth, is like there was a big narrative as this kind of snowballed of like, oh, this is the end of Johnny's, you know. There were articles written by very good journalists, I would say, that were kind of implying like the downfall of Johnny's. 
Um, and really, it's not that. It's the downfall of a certain era of Johnny's, mm-hmm. most reflected by the fact that they had to change the name to Starto Entertainment. So Starto, uh, the company formerly known as Johnny's. And yeah, I mean, as Ronald has kind of mentioned numerous times in this podcast, like their acts are still selling incredible numbers. More than everyone else. Yeah, no, it's when you actually get into the numbers and even just the visibility of the artists, as Ronald also alluded to, you know, following the company kind of acknowledging-ish this history with their, their founder, like a lot of companies were really fast to distance themselves from Johnny's talent who are very in demand for advertising campaigns and TV shows. So like for a while there, it's like, oh, they like were tearing down posters of, of Johnny's people at Mossberger or whatever. But even then, like in the months since, like they're back on TV. Like in the past month, you can see Snowman everywhere again. And it's kind of like slowly returning to normal. So it was never going to be that simple of just like this giant, like J-pop juggernaut collapsing in on itself. It's more of a question of like, how are they changing? Mm-hmm. And we've seen them take the steps with at least the name so far. Um, we have to keep an eye on how they're approaching, like, uh, you know, assisting the victims of Johnny Kitagawa uh, financially yep. and just how they move forward. I just think about like, I remember talking to someone and being just like, oh, like the big question this year as we like near this time is Kohaku. And everyone was just like, are they going to be invited? Are they going to be invited? Are they going to be there? And in the end, they're not there. Um, in the end, they're not there. As the rumor went, it was that they offered, the rumor goes is that they offered them reduced slots and they were just like, no, take it, all of us or no. And they were like, oh, we don't want to do reduced slots, so we'll just do our own thing, which we'll get to that in a moment. But like, I do like wonder if like NHK sits there with kind of like egg on their face because they're just like, oh, all the other networks said that they were not going to have them, and now you have them on all your year-end shows, and some of them are even being hosted by the company's talents. Oh. Like, that's just something I think about, like, looking at these lineups. But what do you think, you guys? I guess it's like yeah, like, um, because I it's I think it's usually it's showing on like you know like drama appearances as well, TV appearances were like abruptly cut or like cut short, but then like you see next year showing and it's like you know we have like snowman members showing up for like at least a couple of them and it's like you know what it's like whoa like we're companies were actually gonna really take this seriously or was it just a re- like a quick reaction at that time and then you know as things cool down things can begin again so it's like yeah like it was never really in the end and it looked like a very serious reaction to things mm. but then also too like patrick wrote about this in his newsletter about kohaku a couple of weeks ago or days ago about how 
they're just going to go and do like streams for their year and stuff instead of doing Kohaku, which Patrick said actually is a much more modern approach to things than like this 20th century show trying to survive in the 21st century. Patrick, talk about that a bit. I mean, it's one of the funny ironies of all of this. And it kind of goes back to the overreaching theme we've talked about today, which is, you know, the changes in J-pop that makes it more international. Um, you know, Kohaku, Kohaku Utagasen, the long-running NHK urine bonanza, where like a, the most in theory, the most popular artists of the year get together to sing their songs to a crowd of people at home who have nothing else to do uh, on December 31st. Um, it's a TV show. You can stream it on NHK, but it's kind of a pain. Like, even if you live in Japan, it's easier just to turn on your TV and go to channel one and watch it there. So it's very much this traditional idea of New Year's entertainment and of entertainment in general, which is like a big monocultural TV show. So because of what's happened with uh, Starto and, you know, the fact that NHK did not, you know, allegedly didn't take the regular offer and just said like none this year, you know, um, Starto artists will be doing their own YouTube live streams on December 31st, whether that's kind of like talk sessions or performances or concert footage, you're seeing this very, like, it's quite frankly, a very modern approach to a new year's Eve show. I mean, it's closer to like a Twitch stream of somebody going on and being like, all right, hey, we're just going to talk for a couple hours and see what happens. And it's especially compelling in this context because, you know, these are idols. So there's this built-in fandom that is more interested in that than, say, a variety show, basically, where it's like, I can see the top J-pop acts of the year plus a couple celebrities plus uh, they're going to break the Kendama record again, you know. <laughs> there's a domino challenge this year, too. Mizumori Kaori. There's a do- oh, is there? I didn't see that. A domino challenge. Yes, it's like it was like Mizumori Kaori and like, I forgot the song she's singing. It's like some peninsula in the north or something. Um, but because um, she names all her songs after like geographical locations. Um, but yeah, it was like domino challenge special. Well, now I'm going to tune in. Um, I didn't know about the domino challenge. But, like, this is very much the traditional idea of Japanese entertainment. This is like a variety show. It's like song, dance, comedy, etc. John, or Starto, is actually doing something that's much more modern. That's something closer to what, like, a Hikakin would do. Or a VTuber would do. Which is quite interesting. Let's go. Considering that it's the company that was like so phobic of the internet, and now it's just like they're basically doing Twitch streams. And that's, and that's another example, actually, of how COVID changed everything, right? Because I think the first time they did kind of a live stream was because of COVID, yeah? Mm-hmm. Where they taught everyone yeah. how to wash their hands. Yeah. Yeah. Funny enough, do you know what that initiative was called? What was it called? I forgot. 
my love. It's a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it was a public it was a public good service company that the company established to like serve the public good and so they transferred that name from wash your hands to compensating victims <sighs> because they're both public goods and that's true so <laughs> we we can much different situations but hey that's that's for the minutiae of an article but going back to a minute to kohaku and this idea of like the idol war that hannah spoke of um so there were a lot. So something that one of the Japanese Johnny Wolf tweeted, tweeted was just like, hey, all you be first. I, we completely forgot about talking about be first, but like. BMSG. They were around. But um, someone, one of the Japanese Johnny Wolf tweeted this and it got millions of views. It got like I think like 2.9 million views. And she was basically just like, hey, all of you be first and Lapone and LDH fans like wishing for the downfall of our company. Just so you know, you guys are not going to get the opportunities you guys think you're going to get if we fall. Those opportunities are going to go to K-pop. And she was absolutely right because when you take Johnny's out of the equation at Kohaku, you don't end up with I and I and like the rampage at Kohaku. You end up with 17 and Stray Kids. So it's just interesting how the space for boy bands, how we thought this boy band thing was going to play out, isn't exactly playing out how some people thought it would be, where these other groups would be like, so kind of like in competition with Johnny's. It's like they actually ended up being blocked by K-pop in a way which is something I found interesting, which I didn't really, like, speak about last year. I, th- I mean, I think that's very similar to girl groups as well, because, you know, you have the Seraphim, which, sure, AKB kind of with Sakura, but, like, last year we had Ive, and then, you know, it's the same with Kohaku. It's, like, AKB is gone, and it's really replaced with these K-pop mm-hmm. groups. I feel like it's, I think it's kind of similar with girl groups around. But I also think it's just because, like, unlike the international fans and unlike some of the more conservative, like, Japanese fans, um, a lot of these companies are a lot more comfortable working with their... working across country borders, right? They're okay with saying, like, oh, hey, like, we see that this is popular. So you have, like, the current Produce 101 Japan winner is a girl who used to formerly be part of a Hello Project group. And, like, the international fandom freaked out, right? They were like, how could she betray us like this? But, you know, she won. She won with quite a sizable margin, too. Or, like... um when it comes to a bunch of these like K-pop groups, a ton of them will always consistently have at least two or three Japanese members. So it's really more like the industry is more okay with working together with their counterparts like across the street, essentially. I just remember watching FNS a couple of days ago and people were pointing this out and they were just like, 
Raul from Snowman was like doing a dance collaboration with one of the guys from Anteam, and they were just like, "Is this actually like a Starto and Hive collaboration?" Like, oh, things have changed. You went from like quote unquote blocking anyone that was competition to actually like full on dancing with them on FNS. Yeah. But, like, again, it's a repeat of 23 years ago, because, like, how did K-pop get permission to even advertise themselves as idols in Japan? It's because a lot of the K-pop companies went up to Johnny's and said, we will help you market in South Korea, which was a really, really good deal for Johnny's, because, like, I'm pretty sure South Korea may have more diehard Kimutaku fans than Japan, which is a very, very big statement if you know how many diehard Kimitaka fans there are. But, like, Korea was really basking in the fact that, like, oh, hey, like, we can legally import Japanese stuff now. But um, in exchange for Johnny's allowing them to advertise groups like Tombang Shinki as idol groups and sell, like, publicly. I, I will say, though, that, like, the Johnny Wilta, they do love the Korean ones because the Korean ones will leak everything. If they get a hold of something, they will leak it. And, like, people are just like, oh, my God, yes, I didn't have to buy it because the Korean fans leaked it. But um, that is our boy band section. So, like, what's Wait, our next topic? You didn't you didn't talk about the biggest one. Which is for what? For me this year, which is Strawberry Prince. Oh, well, I didn't have a boy's asterisk section because you didn't say one. But, but like, yeah, they're going to be a cool hawk. We can't, we I'm can't so ignore Strawberry Prince. So I was actually confused as to whether or not I should really, like, call them VTubers because I didn't really see them use the VTuber tag. And then one of my friends uh, who runs VTuber News Drop was like, no, Hannah, you can. And I was like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, when Anime Fest Asia Singapore uh, was doing their announcements, they sent me a press release for Strawberry Prince and explicitly called them as VTubers, which had to be signed off by their company. So this is totally fine. And I was like, let's fucking go. <laughs> but Strawberry Prince, largest tour mobilization 2023 first half. The full year has not come out. Like, literally, how many albums did they sell? 192,000. So the largest anime-related album beating out Kesoku Band, which is also, like, kind of bittersweet because I love Kesoku Band, too. And it's just, like... It's interesting because it's so many different fandoms all crossed together. Like... Idol fans and VTuber fans and, like, anime fans all coming together. Yeah, but they all hate each other, too. That's the other thing. <laughs> oh. And there's actually a fourth fandom, which is why I brought this up. But it's the Utaite fandom. So, Ro, do you want to explain what an Utaite is? Um... I can't do my best. You can, like, correct me at points. But, like, it, it's so weird because, like, Utaite... I mean, it's, it's like, the like the very basic is, like, they're, like, cover singers. But, like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're... You know, they obviously kind of... It's gone to the point where, like, you know, Ado grew up 
that, that she's basically no Taite, where she has her identity kind of an anonymous, and then they kind of hide behind a 2D avatar almost. That's kind of like the reputation they've gained right yeah, now. Yeah, so it's yeah. like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very blurred with the VTubers, especially if you know they're very active on the internet, maybe they stream, but it's really it's a little different in the sense that like they don't stream, but it's like they're basically cover singers. Um they might have original material of their kind. I know Raon, like a Korean Utaite, yeah started out with very J-pop covers now has very original material with like producer like be like vocal producers like Giga who also has a work with Dado. Um, but yeah, basically they're like cover singers that often hide behind behind 2D avatars. Yeah, like that was a perfect 10 out of 10 explanation, but it's kind of just like I feel like to anyone this shouldn't be too surprising that they're super popular because like okay listening to Hatsune Miku uh is like you have to get used to Miku's voice right so like and the the concept of Utaita and Hatsune Miku are very very intertwined because like the very very first Utaita that I can remember we're all basically people who took Hatsune Miku songs, like really, really good Hatsune Miku songs, and would just cover them using their own natural voice. Which meant, like, if you were a first-time Miku listener, these songs were like 50 times easier to listen with a real person singing it. <laughs> and so the idea of, like, there'll be this producer and composer, like, making this really awesome track just with, like, a Hatsune Miku song... Uh, layer over it and then he would send it out into the void and all these utaites would like come around and cover it and create their own renditions and like this is obviously something that like everyone does like Justin Bieber was freaking um, scouted as basically like an utaite type but for some reason it's such a larger I'm, like, not even 100% sure why. I think it has something to do with Hatsune Miku, but I've never, like, properly looked into it myself. But, like, something about Japan's, like, culture of covers, particularly with Nico Nico Dogo, just meant everyone and their mom wanted to be in Utaite. Isn't it just karaoke? It's not just karaoke, because they'll have the actual instrumentals, and then they'll do like the proper mixing the proper like some of these will do like rearrangements they'll reinterpret the song as themselves so i want to say it's a little bit more involved than just being a simple karaoke mix i mean like from the offset they are a cover singer so it could Mm -hmm. like more clearly it could be karaoke but i think definitely the best ones is like what really differentiates it in the sense that like they enter like interpret it on their own with their own personality as like a coco singer it's yeah so i think it really depends on just their skills as a performer but this whole thing reminds me of something that patrick wrote about earlier this year which was basically how there was this big scare in the West about the rise of AI and music and how basically like he was like, oh, this basically is just like Utaites, like these AI people 
like these AI programs writing song, like singing cover songs. It's basically butaites, and people are just like afraid of just like, oh, what is going to happen to like music? Will music become obsolete? And he was like, actually, no. You're going to get a bunch of boring bands and so singer songwriters after this. What? But they're not boring. I, I would like to immediately push back and say I did not write boring. That is a Ronald. That's a Ronald editorializing. <laughs> but um, you are right in the greater point, which is people look at because a lot of people. One of the things that constantly inspires me to write about this is like people always bring Hatsune Miku and Vocaloid into the conversation about AI music whatever the hell that is, or virtual artists of the modern day, which are like Lil Michaela and Bored Apes <laughs> singing like rap songs. Um, and it's not, it's totally different. But like, even if we grant them this and we grant them this tech, like different music technology, it's scary. Like if we look at J-pop today, all this does is it's a way for a new generation of people to discover their voice and then become artists of their own. And we're seeing it completely today in J-pop with the Yonsobis and Kenshionezus and Autos of the world. Like, yeah, to me, when you look at stuff like AI music, it's either like pure memes or it's going to be a tool that people use to find their own voice and go from there. And that's the story of, like, that's very similar to Utape, which is a little more like you know, that's using your voice. So it's not like, I'm Ghostwriter, I'm Drake now. But at the same time, it is using an existing thing mm -hmm. to discover who you are. And then you're, you're Rail, you're Otto, you're whoever. It's just like, I think one of the things that most surprised me is if you had asked me 10 years ago, oh, like, what do I kind of think the biggest all the biggest like names in japan are going to come from 10 years ago i would have literally said it's going to be miku producers right because they're the people writing and i forget i kind of forgot how shy they are they all are like you can kind of tell by the lack of tv appearances that kenshi or like even ayase have that these are not the most like public facing people. And I'm like, that's right. Utaite are a little bit more okay with putting themselves out there. <laughs> Can't you like consider like, you know, like like for like for example, Suisei Hoshimachi as like an Utaite initially yeah. mm -hmm. and before she got her own songs, like she streamed and then she like sync other people's covers. And I would actually say, like, okay, as a VTuber fan, I don't think VTubers could exist without Utaite. Um, like, that culture of, like, creating cover songs and stuff, that's so celebrated within the VTuber fandom. And, like, we as VTuber fans get that from Utaite fans. I will not say who, but I will say the majority of, like, the VTubers out there that are currently operating, whether they say it publicly or not, a lot of them did come from the Utaite scene. Because they just went, look, like, we already create our own covers. 
with these faces like the next step is to just start streaming and like create our own personalities and that's why a lot of them already knew of like you know like the police piccadillies like the gigas all these people like when i dragged ronald to that vtuber concert like one of the two that i dragged you to you were like oh what's this like britney spears song from 2000 doing here right like that was a giga song and that was because fanana had worked with giga before right so like a lot of the snake girl uh not the snake girl the snake girl was day one it was day two she kind of looked snaky but she had legs (laughs) oh Yeah, Yeah, so you're mixing them up. It was interesting this year. I would say the the big takeaway of this year is that Hannah won in multiple ways. Like, she got me to go to to a VTuber concert. Um, I'm going to have to listen to Yumi Matsutoya's 50th anniversary collaboration album um, this weekend, which features Yoasobi and Nogizaka46. Oh, my God. Like, let's go. It's just like, I'm just taking L after L this year. It's like, I had to go to a VTuber concert. I had to listen to Yo Sobi and Noki Zaka 46. For that Yuming thing, I, can I say, like, I think it was credited as Yumi Matsutoya meets Nogi Zaka 46, like M Flow loves whatever. And it's like, I <laughs> oh, love J Pop's oh, way forgot, of crediting you things. The part- you forgot the part that actually is Ronald Core, though. Which is what? produced That's... by Komoro Tetsuya. There we go. Oh, That's really? Not... Oh, that's that's the wow. That's that that hooked me in immediately. <laughs> I was just like, there's a lot going on here. I'm actually curious. But yeah, I have to listen to your Sophie. It's your duty. Just, just do it. That you called terrorism. Ikuta Lila, yeah. I could say, I mean, Ikuta Lila's covered songs and she got picked up by yeah. Ayasi, a Hudson yeah. Miku producer. She is uh, It's High to In the Flesh. Mm. Some of them go in front of the camera, like her. Others, like Kaf, Suisei, like a bunch of all of my favorites from like both Niji Sanji and Hololai, they were all like, they're all very behind the screens. Utaites. Kafu has such a productive year. It's 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 been a it's been a joy following her. Yeah, my girl, and I got to interview her. Please read the interview. So, um, what is our next topic? So, we're going. To talk about one part that we kind of glossed over. You kind of prefaced it by saying, oh, there's like a war between like K-pop idols versus like J-pop 3D idols. But let's talk about K-pop in Japan. Like, not in terms of like against or relative to Japanese idols, but like how K-pop has done in Japan. And the reason why I want to talk about this is because Misamo is the best thing to me since sliced bread. Well, I will say I find it kind of shady that they dropped twice from Kohaku to just have Misamo, which, like, I think just, like, screams nationalism. Yeah, that's why they made Niji Yu. Yeah. Twice with, twice with only Japanese people. 
So. Now it's just like, oh, wait, there's a Japanese-only subunit of TWICE? Bring them on. Forget those other girls. And I was just like, uh, cringe. I mean, one thing I would like to talk about that hasn't been mentioned yet is really, like, the impact of new jeans that had on mm-hmm. Idol World, mm-hmm. which both K-pop as well as J-pop. It's like, obviously, I like I, f- I feel like I have, like, like positive this question of like whether you know like new jeans part of their fashion is white so came nostalgia like i don't know if that would have appeared with new jeans or without new jeans but definitely that music that they carry like the very like two-step garagey you know Pan- panthers core stuff has really also seeped into j-pop as well and it's like you know you have it's i i think it's it's like give or take it can be like oh j-pop has always done this like drum and bass like very max like breakbeat kind of stuff anyway but like you can you see with the visuals aesthetics that the idols are matching up it's like yeah this is definitely something post new jeans and it's like it's great it's it's just wild to see the impact of new jeans just like flow into uh outside of k-pop and outside of k-pop in such like in like a short span of time I do like that phrase, post-New Jeans. It's very much like the 2023 version of, like, post-Vocaloid, which I believe is, like, a phrase that, like, the people in this chat made up. It was a Patrick be special. Better. I mean, I, I just feel like, you know, like you measure, you know, K-pop by generations, but it's, mm-hmm. like, New Jeans is definitely what is defining of this current generation. It's, yeah. you know, it's really... Um, and most of the sound, it's, like, very, like, anti-polish, anti, like, very all made up. It's really, like, just downplayed, something very natural, but that is itself a polish and artifice of itself. But it's, you know, it's this fabrication of naturalness, very, like, lack of fabrication that really K-pop has built its name over. Well, It's I also, will... like, really interesting that I see all this Y2K nostalgia. Like I sent in the group chat um, that we have for all of us, like this screenshot of a Japanese fashion magazine where they were doing like Y2K, but it's 2023. And I was like, we're so back. I will say though, that like when I did the Oricon year in chart, New Jeans is, um, well, they listed as like, oh my God, parentheses, ditto, ditto. I don't really know which one of the two it is, but like, it was number three on the year in Oricon, Oricon combined single chart, only behind Idol and Subtitle by Official Higandandism. So it was a very big song. Yeah, well, that gets to something that I think is like, especially when we're talking about their influence on modern day J-pop and sort of like post new jeans is like, you know, one of the buzz terms of the year that popped up on Twitter just throughout 2023 was, I don't know, new jeans Ojisan. Oh like, yeah. What I call like, Ronald's every other day. I love new jeans. Every time Hannah says you hate women, you hate female acts. I was like, but I love new jeans. New jeans so, Ojisan real for real kind of like a new jeans old dude um that's ronald and like 
it's kind of referring to, it's kind of a term that gets people angry if you like break it out. <laughs> but in, in, in truth, what it means is it's an older person, usually a man who is like very like, yeah, I like real music, head nod, head nod, my bloody Valentine, whatever. And like, they like new jeans because they think the music itself is good. Whereas a lot of K-pop people would argue is, you know, flashy, but maybe not good music to each their own. Um, I've seen variations of that on Twitter where it's people being like, um, oh, it's, it, yo, it's crazy. Like new jeans have done so well because K-pop realized if they just make good songs, that really attracts people to listen to it. Um, again, I don't subscribe to that necessarily. However, that ability for new jeans to reach a wide reaching audience, especially one that's kind of more musically nerdy, has really made their presence felt in the Japanese market. And you're definitely seeing artists trying to be like, how do we take ideas that new jeans introduced and put it into what we're doing, whether that's musically or visually? Because I think the, the, the best variation of this that I've seen, and Patrick, I think you've actually written about it from time to time in your newsletter. It's the fact that Taku Takahashi has been like, uh, drawing back on his like very very like two thousands and flow self mm-hmm. in his music now, and I'm like, yeah, this is why I like his output more because I was there for M flow and I'm here back again. There's nothing more Y2K than M flow. I was so. going yeah. to mention the new the new Fakey single as well as mm-hmm. Taku's one uh, five single. It's like like if, if I think if you never lend us into mflow you could probably be like oh this is new jeans but this is why I bring up like you know like Jake pop has had this roots forever so it's like a give and take like well is it really like sometimes you're like kind of wonder if like if it's new jeans or if this Jake pop has it all along but I think just I think with new jeans arrival it's like I feel like it has brought up this opportunity or at least an excuse to really bring up those like aesthetics back into the mainstream. Because, like, I guess, and I'm also speaking particularly as, like, a diaspora Korean who was sent to Korea every single summer as I was growing up, right? So I was there to see the fad that was the Amuda. We got it, like, slightly late. So whereas in Japan, I want to say it was, like, what, 97, 98, probably? Like, the late 90s. Korea really got it, like, 2000, 2001, 2002. Right. So I remember people dressing like an Amuda back then and being able to like look at a new jeans cover right now and be like, I remember when people dress like this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then we seeing these like new wave of the like, Gyaru boom. It's like yes. it's really ripe for that kind of stuff. It's kind of sad that Namiya Amuro's discography just had to like disappear from streaming now because so i wrote a series of articles like a couple of years ago about like garu right and how garu kind of disappeared little did i know i should have really written that this year <laughs> because like it disappeared or like just in just connection with the nami Yamura discography just wipe being wiped out <laughs> uh like, I feel like 
I feel like Garu, I mean, it changed forms, but I feel like the spirit is very much alive. So what I want to say is that it became mainstream. And so it no longer felt separate, right? Like after Nishino Kano, right? And after her like ascension into the mainstream, I actually want to say, particularly with Garu fashion, it was just the thing to do. It was no longer like a separate entity or a subculture. That was the thing. Like if you were a girl in Japan, you wore Liz Lisa. You knew what Samantha Thavasa was, right? Like these were just the brands that you shopped at. And they were no longer like a separate entity, but it was now just the established Japanese mainstream. And so when I say it disappeared, I want to say like it disappeared as a subculture. But oh, it yeah. very much only did that because it was the established culture now. Everyone yeah. knew who Nishino Kana was. You knew Torisetsu. Like, that was your song that year, right? You probably yeah. listened to Taylor Swift. <laughs> I mean, you can see it. Like, you have the very composite, like, I'm pretty sure Garu is, like, a good Halloween costume to go in Japan by now. And yeah, then you have the yeah, Garu yeah. pieces and stuff like that. So it's... Definitely, like, not the subculture as it was in the 90s, where it's, like, mm-hmm. more of a punk attitude. But, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, like, the only reason why you could even, like, perceivably say, oh, it quote-unquote, like, disappeared is just because, like, everyone was doing it. So it was nothing special. Right? But I think because of that, people are kind of nostalgic for back when it was kind of, like, a little bit different. <laughs> Yeah, I think the people who are really, like, kind of, you know, bringing it back, so to speak, is, like, I think they're very nostalgic for when it was, like, kind of looked down upon, in a sense. Yeah, when, oh, the joke that I remember reading from people, like, being, like, an angry teenager, being like, how dare you talk about them this way, right, was, like, three seconds from Mizu Shobai. No. Like, that's what, that's how they used to describe, like, the Garu music, right? So mm-hmm. the Ayumi, Masaki, and all that kind of stuff, music, they would be like, this girl's three seconds away from being a hostess. <laughs> but, yes, it actually, it's really funny that you guys bring up New Jeans, though, because, like, I remember one of the first things, when I first started listening to the Japanese music, I noticed that... Japan was one of the few countries that actually picked up on UK Garage back when it was first a thing in the UK. And New Jeans does that music now, too. So I can see, like, why it would be connecting to Japan the way that it is, because they do pick up on trends that, like, were from overseas that only Japan really picked up on. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just part of, like, I think people might, like, in a far distant kind of way, kind of pick up, like, oh, this is something I'm very familiar with. Because it's, yeah, like I said, it's embedded in, like, 2000 J-pop. But what is our next topic? So, with that, we need to go into the other thing, which is... You got to talk about the animes. And Ronald, I know you're rolling your eyes. But you I am actually. To. How'd you know? Because you hate anime. 
But wow. yes. How many anime have you seen in your life? Um, I've watched I've watched um two. Tokyo. I watched um the one that Sakamoto did the theme song for a couple of years ago. Tokyo, the one about the earthquake. Oh, that one. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know the name of it, but like Tokyo. Okay, one. Tokyo sinks. Tokyo sinks. Yeah, I watched that. Okay. Um, I watched. That was his first anime that he ever watched. I watched the webtoon last year. Lookism. Yeah, I watched that. And your his first thought after watching Lookism was to message me and be like, "This is so grotesque." I was like, wow, Korea's a really sad place. Like, this guy's being bullied for being ugly. That's, like, everywhere, dude. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, where were you in the 90s? <laughs> yeah, where are you today? I was bullied for being gay, so I didn't know. Uh, okay, well, I was fat and ugly, so that was my, <laughs> that was my plight as a junior high Everyone school. has their cross the bear. <laughs> Man, but anyways, but- like... It's it's just really funny because Ronald's second anime, as he says it, some people on my anime list would be very mad about this, um, is probably more indicative of anime today than ever before. But before we get into that, I want to hear Patrick's take on it as somebody who is not into anime, mm-hmm. but lives in Japan and has to be exposed to it on a daily basis. So it's weird because in the past, what, two and a half years, I've probably watched more anime than I ever have in my life. Like, because I wasn't an anime person growing up. I watched um, Pokemon, like, I think it was on UPN or... Yeah. Like in Southern California, I forget. But I was never an anime person. And like, but in the last few years whether it's because of the music related to it or just because I think there's a lot of good anime right now. Like I've kind of, for me, I'm as close to a weave as I'll ever get, um, which, which is really not that much comparatively. It's like, I watch Spy Family every week, <laughs> which I think- But isn't that because like, of your kids? <laughs> well, first off, no, I'm not showing my kids Spy Family because really? it's the last thing I need. No, because there's violence. That's no good. She's going to learn how to snipe people. I can't afford that. Dad coming out of Patrick today. Yeah. Yeah. Dad. Look, I spent all day with my kid today. I'm I'm exhausted. (laughs) So, but yeah, this is, that's the parenting line. But, but it's like, I'm very like, I'm not like deep in anime, but I'm more deep than I've ever been. And I'm always interested in the tension between like because it's very noticeable when you live in japan especially in non-japanese communities because like if you like anime you're instantly shunned we really yeah of course we really like girl thank you ronald that's true that's such an easy like internet thing to like pick up don't watch anime in the west i'm not saying that i'm saying i'm saying that Okay, no. okay, so first off, first off, false. But second of all, like, okay, if you move to Japan, 
I'm just going to assume you're a weeb. <laughs> so this is assumption is wrong. This is why I guess they're like this is because it's like no, I don't like anime. Actually, they're like I like video games or it's the like, same um, thing. <laughs> Hannah, don't. Shh, it's okay. Um, or I like I don't know uh, uh, karate, whatever. I'm like bonsai trees. Yeah. Bonsai trees, thank you. Uh, uh, Marie Kondo. Um, all the things we love and associate with Japan. But there is a real tension. And I do find that when looking at how music is picked up by people both in Japan and abroad, where it's like, oh, this is anime music. It doesn't count. And like, <laughs> but in reality, that is. In reality, though, that is where all the biggest hits are coming from now, right? So it's like, to kind of understand Japanese popular music, you do have to have at least a vague understanding of the anime that goes with it, right? Like, Idol only truly makes sense if you know what Okinoko is. True. Yeah. Or I'm trying to think of other... I mean, there's also that. like you know, like 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 Ronald mentioned the biggest female acts. If you want to just count by technicality, it's Kesoku Band. It's like you only like oh cool, like you only know its full scope if you watched Bochi the Rock. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's like dead on. So yeah, it's like I do find there's people who are afraid <laughs> to like learn about anime because of that. But in reality, if you want to understand Japanese entertainment, and especially what's popular domestically and internationally, so everything, it's like you do have to have a little bit of anime understanding, even if it's just this song is from the anime about the idols. This and this song is from the anime about the uh, Tokyo Revengers? Question mark. Like, oh yeah. Like yeah, they, like I mean, like. Yeah, like Chainsaw Man's a good example where like mm-hmm. all twelve endings were like, you know, at least a good half of it was like very mainstream people, whether it be like like obviously Kenshi Unizu or uh Queen Bee or Ano. And then they had like like Spy Fam is a good example where it's like the really big names are like involved in both the, the- theatrical and this was a theme. Hoshino Gen, Ado is for the theatrical, uh Higedan is with both the TV and the theatrical versions. It's like you know, like these are names that like you can't skate from J-pop proper, but like, like wow, with Spy Family, it's like, it's like you know how the big deal is in the musical department if you get all these names for your theme songs. Something I've been curious about, and I don't know if you guys have any insight into this, is because there's always that division between kind of like a quote-unquote like anime scare quotes and then stuff like Studio Ghibli. I'm curious, have people received Kechionezu's theme song to The Boy and the Heron well? Like, or is it still seen as kind of like, this is anime music, but it's with Ghibli, so it's kind of like slightly more... Ele- I'm curious about that, because there is still that distinction. I feel like that song is very, like, the, like secondary or maybe tertiary mm-hmm. to the, anim- like the movie itself. I don't really see much buzz about it so i guess like at most it's like oh this is anime music okay i feel like ghibli was always treated kind of separately so i want to say that 
um, he was always seen as like, oh, he's he's anime, but he's not that kind of anime, right? Yeah, yeah. So I feel like because of its association with that, I think it will be treated a little bit different. But I will say, like, it was definitely an art film. So I think I've seen a lot more discussion about how people are just like, I really don't understand what the hell's going on with this movie. Yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> I, I think it's funny that, like, Joe Hisai, she's like, the music gets all this pull from Ghibli, movie, Ghibli movies, but, like, Kenshi Yonezu has none of that that's going for him, at least for that song. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, or I guess like when Yumi Matsutoya does a song, or they pick up a song from it, I'm not sure how like much traction it gets, you know. But funny enough, yeah. funny enough, um, the remember someone with the Spotify decade list earlier? All the songs, basically, I think all the songs on that list of the top five are her, except for I think one or two, and they're all from Ghibli movies. Yeah, but. Huh. I can, like, literally tell you what that background is. It's literally because people who are watching Spirited Away are just like, oh, I miss the Spirited Away songs, and I'm going to work to it. And that's what it is. Hmm. Although I guess, like, this actually kind of proves, like, Patrick's point where, like, if you know the backstory, a lot of these songs make a lot more sense. (laughs) I mean, I'm, like... A bit like a first and example like i first kind of like started digging into like older per se like showa music because of kiki's delivery service and like carrying you like human songs in it yeah that is a very first-hand experience <laughs> i just listened because i was like oh this is a woman that's very successful i should listen to her <laughs> of course you would the Ronald story in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, because, like, I, because it goes back to what we talked about, like, for years, Patrick, this idea of building a canon. And, like, Yumi mm-hmm. Matsutoya is definitely someone in that canon. Oh, so definitely. It's yeah. kind of just like, I have to listen to this woman. Like, she's like the first person to have a number one album in, like, the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and 2020s. So, how could I not listen to her? Oh, that's true. That's she's on the what was it the the list of women you respect <laughs> to yes. take it back to the yes, start yes, of the yes. episode. I, I respect all women. I just don't oh, okay. like all their music. <laughs> ah, okay, okay. I will say this. I will say this. There are just as many men I don't like. Oh, okay, I'm glad you added this in. What is it? Hour three. So, but I will say this also. Patrick's list of men that he doesn't like is even longer. That's true. I already gave you two of them. It's Mr. Children in the back number. So. And Miss Green Apple. And Mrs. Green Apple, yeah. So there, there you have your like 90s, 2000s, 2010s, 2020s. Do I even have a list like that? I don't know. But the men that we don't like? No, <laughs> just like people that I refuse to listen to on principle. XG. No. I... Blacklist? There is a VTuber blacklist, but it's mostly just, like, like, a girl got caught doing Xanax on stream. Like, that would be the VTuber blacklist. But even then, it's just like, oh, that's sad. Uh, What is our next topic? So, 
we're gonna wrap it up here and just say what is our favorites for the year album and song or just album song whatever well you know what it should just be song because the album's dead according to this conversation (laughs) well you know what i'm talking about an album so screw you (laughs) except ronald earlier in this episode was like i'm gonna talk about an album later as my (laughs) (laughs) so yeah shush so So, who's gonna go first dun 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 i say row I go first. Okay. Um, okay. So, um, well, on the I already talked about my like song of the year proper on a different Nante Japan podcast. So, if I may, I will talk about my uh, number one idol song of the year. Um, it's kind of I don't know if technicality's sake it came out December, um, but I feel like you know you don't really grow into the song that you like. Um, very immediately so I um, I will say that so my favorite idol song of the year I chose number one is uh, Denpagumi Inc's um, Augmented Oji-chan um, you know it's I would say maybe it is a kind of typical if like more like very overwhelming like Denpagumi number very like Denpa um, typical Denpa music a lot of busy synths and stuff like that what you imagine a lot of busy Lines training being around. Um, but the background is that, like, you know, the whole concept of the song is imagining the Akihaga- Akihabara as how it would look in the, tw- like, the year 2000, 2000 like, 2100, um, the 22nd century. And just, like, seeing how Akiba culture is remembered as a decade's time. And then... The whole music video really reflects that. It's like very nostalgic of Tucha, like Tucha memes and stuff like that. And the music itself, like, is made by the architects of Dumpa music or parts of, including Iosis and oh gosh, I Mosaic Wave. Um, two mm-hmm. people that's very crucial to um, the Akiva culture, like Dumpa music of that scene. But yeah, they like wrote the song. It's all nostalgic of Akiba culture. And then it really hit me like, you know, um, like to me, Akiba, like the. Like in the context of like the drama, um, Densha Otoko being very popular, that seems to me kind of recent. Obviously, it's like when I was in like high school, but to me, it's really recent. So like it's really to be hit back with like, wow, like. It's been so long since 2005. Like all the, you think of Akihabara being full of the technology you never owned, this alien otaku culture. You know that's actually being nostalgic now, and also the sense of uh, like the Pagumi Inc. very being urgent of like you know, like very memorial like documenting idol culture, how it would be remembered in context of Akiba culture, because. You know, it like, um, like part of the reason I went to Akihabara with Patrick, very great for him, really showed me around there. But like, part of the reason was like seeing how Idol has like blossomed from there. In the sense, you have the AKB stages, you have the Maid cafes as like roots there, and really like 
idol riding the wave of otaku culture at the time from the district and then that being something nostalgic as well and how like it you know just it's kind of hard to find like like really good like like retrospectives of that era even though it's so crucial to the beginnings of idol culture as it comes in the 2010s and then that being lost um, like unless it's really it's really only talked about from people or fans that really came there firsthand so it's like you know you just kind of show you how idol culture is you know kind of they had it's, it, it can get very easily lost in the way and it's really up to like very pop it up to really still cop top talk about the history in a way like all that really packed into like a song and then you know and then very like the crucial moments of the song is really about what about idol like maybe denpagumi ink in specific but really like about idols in specific is really why it's worth not only like keeping track of but keeping a history for it so um but yeah it's just like there's so much of what I really care about, idol culture, its history and stuff, is really packed into a song that really harps on its importance of why, you know, just keeping history of everything is so important. Um, but yeah, that is my, basically, my song of the year. Do you have an app? Did you... Oh, sorry. What was I saying? Um, did you have... You had your song in your album, right? Oh, an album. Okay. I didn't know... <laughs> I, kinda... I was joking about the album Dead part. <laughs> I still believe. <laughs> okay. Um. So, um, for album of the year, I, it's not maybe it's not as like I want to talk as densely as I did. Right. You don't have ago. to. But, um, my favorite album, just to promote it, is um, Launchbox by Yukin Nagase. If you want to combine. Her brilliant collaboration with the uh, local vision label OACL. Um, that would be, I will bundle it as well. But really, I've been very amazed at her, all of her work. Um, I, I got really into her by just knowing that she actually has collaborated with so many people that I really follow, I really admire, um, including the folks at the local vision label. And you just like pack open the launchbox um, credits, and you'll see the first song is already made by Pasako Music Club, which also made my song of the year. Um, she's basically like just she's a new, I guess she can consider her an Taite, but she is basically she keeps her identity anonymous. She is her visual identity is definitely internet driven. Um, her like her pictures are always like of around a 2D avatar that she always shows packs around. But yeah, I mean, it's just like very, you just like look deep down, and that is all of the internet pop of Japan that I keep up with. And then all that supporting her make one of the best pop music um, available this year. Um, yeah, it's just like a lot of electronic pop that is pretty like you know pretty good one of my favorite songs it's just like you know it's the kind of busy electronic pop that you imagine maybe like sound cloud core or something but it really yeah it's just i think it's just um 
it really summarizes the um, really good in, like pop going on the internet right now. She is like using that to really drive her music for it. Okay. Next, it's Patrick. I know he probably doesn't have an album because he likes to release his album of the year list like in April. Oh, Ronald, that's out now. Yeah. I'm joking. Yeah. I saw you, I saw your newsletter. Oh. I'm joking. But I know how you are with like, the, like I don't really problem, think that album the, the problem is that that joke is mostly true, except for this year. So it was a little like oh, oh too real. Ronald missed it. <laughs> He'll no, never I know what the seventy seventh best album of the year is. Um but <laughs> actually, you know, I'll start with album just because I actually I think I have a lot in common with Rio with his album of the year, albeit a different album. But um, my number one of the year was from Electronic Internet Group, Supergroup, Postasta's debut album, Good Pop. Um, this is a group that consists of six producers who are kind of most, most known from the Japanese net label scene. So kind of like Maltine Records, like Omoide label, a bunch of like weird internet constellations that have just been doing their thing for like over a decade. And that's a scene I really value and find important. The members of Postasta are Hidehiri, Kabanagu, Fritz, Kori, Amane Uyama, and Yuigot. And they all have their own, they all come from very diverse backgrounds of electronic music. You know, one of them's a Vocaloid producer, another's a hyperpop kid, another used to be in this weird Neo Shibuya K band. Um, but they've all come together for this project and they've created a 21 minute album that for me, besides being this really loving tribute to Japanese internet music, it kind of inadvertently, but also advertently is kind of like a snapshot of all Japanese music in 2023. So good pop is it finds these producers bringing in a lot of guests to sing over their songs. And the guests they choose are just from this like far flung collection of Japanese music scenes. So for example, they will bring in, thank you so much, Hannah. They bring in notable yellow VTuber Peanuts Kuhn to sing on Peanut Phenomena, a song that mashes together like heavy metal breakdowns with chanting with like just jolly electro pop. But there's also a VTuber right in the middle of it. Later on, they bring in these like ambassadors of the Japanese underground, like hyper pop slash youth movement, youth rap movement, Peter Parker 69, who come in and just do their thing alongside Pastasta. They have a representative from the indie rock world, Kwando, who's the lead singer of No Buses, this like Setagayaku, like nervy rock band that's been kind of gaining attention for a while now. He comes in and does his thing. They bring in half of Chelmiko. Um, in the funniest accident, in retrospect, they bring in the singer Soshi Sakiyama who, when the album came out, was most known for being on the first take. But in the months since, 
actually is a representative of anime music because his one of his songs became the ending theme for uh, Jujutsu Kaisen, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, like, within all 21 minutes of this really oddball album that's just, like, all about these guys seeing what they can do with music and just, like, slamming genres together, they're also inadvertently being like, this is all elements of Japanese music today, and we're going to bring them together into this beautiful chaos. And I love it. It's this really joyful, funny album. Like, and if you listen to it and kind of like dig deeper into it, you'll actually discover these different like trails to go down to learn about contemporary J-pop and Japanese underground music. So good pop, Pastasta, number one album. Probably was that since May. Love it. So good. VTuber prominently featured. You gotta love it. Um, My peanuts. We gotta love peanuts, good. He's so good. A dream interview, to be honest. Um, in terms of songs, my favorite Japanese song of the year is the debut single from the idol group slash art collective Bala with their oh. debut single Barla. <laughs> exactly. Shinichi Osawa provides the music, and then um Hidefumi Kenmochi does the lyrics. So it's kind of this interesting generations colliding moment of like j-pop producers uh i really like what bala kind of represents in modern in modern japanese music um i just love that it's for like very like early 20 something women kind of just like they're not idols per se but they definitely respect idols but they're kind of using that as a launching pad to do what they want and they label themselves an artist collective, I believe, or a creative collective. And, you know, they're playing around with all these musical ideas and trying to create something new. They're borrowing from Shibuya K, from Yadu culture, from Y2K, but also trying to update it to modern times. And I really like what they do on the song Barla. It's like, you know, Shinichi Osawa kind of gives them this like French touch beat, which is one really great because I don't hear a lot of that being like played around with in global music. You know, it's all like it's all like new jeans core, Pink Pantheras, you know, <laughs> which is to say like a different strain of Y2K music. <laughs> but like they're doing that and it's really like a great sound. I love that sound in general. And like over that, they're kind of like, it's like an introductory song kind of about celebrating who they are and what their mission statement is and how like this is their time. I love how confident they sound in this song and how it's them like flexing over everything and being like, starting now, we're taking over, but doing it in a way that still sounds very like melodically pleasing. Um, I just really love the combination and what they stand for. So that's my favorite song of the year from Japan. We need to bring back the filtered house. That needs to be like the next. Give it time. Filter filter house will have its global resurgence. Yes. New jeans next move, actually. <laughs> um, but funny story. Love Shinichi Osawa, even though he blocked me on Twitter. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, Shinichiro Sawa is a very complicated figure. I will, I will uh, acknowledge that. But yeah, what did you did you say vaccines work or what? <laughs> Actually, it is related to that. He like went and made a meme. He made him. He like reposted a meme about just like about like vaccines like bad. And I was just like Shinichi Osawa anti-vaxxer blocked. I retweeted his meme and I was just I said he's a, I was like Shinichi Osawa anti-vaxxer question mark and then he blocked me. And he was like we should uh, enjoy life or something. I forget. I was like, why am I being blocked? Great song. Just check that out. (laughs) Yeah. And then from Bala, I love Manon from the group. Um, Mm -hmm. I think she's like making more like hyper poppy stuff, but her solo stuff is very great as well. Manon's a really great representative of like Neo Gyaru. Like, yes. Very much. And, like, trying to sort of, like, figure out a new way, like, how to present that to a 2020s audience, which is very fascinating. Because it is really hard. Like, I I feel for the people trying to bring back Yaru. I hope they succeed. (laughs) Like, um, yeah, um, what's it called? One of, not my number one, but top ten, um... Uh, they built. It's called Galfi Four, but um, oh yeah, I yes, love that thing. Galfi Four. Yes, they pretty much rounded up all the artists. That's I guess you can call hyperpop adjacent. That would be very much uh, specific, very friendly for Garu, which was the aesthetic the actual paraline was going for. But yeah, I feel like that's a very good culmination of like mm-hmm. what underground pop and handshaking with Garu culture. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Updated for a 2023 crowd, basically. <laughs> so Patrick did his album and his song. So I guess it's Hannah's turn now. Okay. So I actually sent this to Ro. And I was like, does this count? Because I actually don't really know. Um... Because technically the song came out way before. And he was like, yeah, this is this is fine. Uh, because the impact was this year. So we'll allow it. It, it fits rules. So the song is this wonderful song <laughs> called... And Ro has already talked about it because Iosis was mentioned. But it's called Loli Kami Rakuen. Everyone should listen to this song. If you want to talk about like uniquely Japanese things going viral, this is the song this year. So one of my friends was like, wait a moment. Like, don't doesn't everybody know this trope? And I'm like, no, friend. Most people do not know Mesugaki tropes in 2023. As like far-reaching as uh, anime culture is, I'm not even sure I want this to be well-known. But essentially, the the song is about a girl who notices that she has a ton of Lolicon fans. And she's just like, why don't you kill yourself? Like, consider turning yourself into jail. Um, and things of that nature. And it's playing up on a very, very old trope, but they use an amazing animator. The thing that usually makes Iosa songs tick is the fact that, like, 
in addition to just being ultra catchy, they almost always have some sort of animation to go with it that you're supposed to listen to. And like this song is just wonderfully animated. All of her expressions are like super cheeky. She was just like, I don't understand why you guys love like cheeky brats so much. Um, but yeah, it's just a wonderful song that comes on the 15th anniversary of another IOSIS classic called Cerno's like uh, math class that is all again very very catchy there's like particular phrases that people love from it and of course any discussion about the song is not complete without discussing the fact that like it has that viral dance and unfortunately i really hope this doesn't catch on because i feel really conflicted if a bunch of preschoolers start doing like a lolicon song <laughs> I think there's I'll keep an eye on my my daughter's homeroom. <laughs> yeah, I look as funny as I think the song is. Uh, something about that just seems terribly wrong to me. So I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> but yeah, like definitely check out the song. It is probably one of the fastest growing songs in Japan this year. Woohoo! Wally Kami Requiem, and then so. This year had a ton of really, really good albums. And I was like, I am actually kind of conflicted on what to choose. Because, like, I also really like Pastasta. Uh, I actually didn't know the backstory. I just knew Peanuts Kun was on it. And I was like, oh, it has Peanuts Kun. <laughs> That's all you need. That's what they wanted. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Peanuts Kun always delivers. And... Dream airdrop, boy. Yeah, <laughs> and like, like Peanuts Kun also had that his album, and like Calf mm-hmm. had her third album, and I was just like, "There's a lot of really, really good albums this year." But I realize my favorite album this year is actually probably Twelve, and I have a specific story to go with it, which is so if you listen to Sakamoto's album, like in addition to what I've already said about it, it sounds like an album that would be really fitting if you were at like an aquarium or something or like somewhere underwater, right? Every single gacha game in existence, every single Mihoyo clone decided to drop an underwater map right around March through May of this year. And if you know when 12 dropped, that's exactly the time. So, like, a very, very subjective reason for why this album is number one is literally the fact that, like, I couldn't stop playing it on repeat as I was beating, grinding all these underground, like, underwater maps on, like, Tower of Fantasy, Genshin Impact. Like, I was even watching people playing Subnautica and being like, huh, like, this is so fitting. For the second half of his life, he was basically a soundtrack producer. And now I'm listening to his final album as a soundtrack. <laughs> so yes, that is that's my favorite. But all the other albums, including like even the ones like Misamo, Ray, Air Attic, I think had their first uh, debut album this year. Like there were just so many good albums that when people were like, "Oh, like Japanese music was not very delivering this year," I'm just like, 
what are you talking about? <laughs> I think it's served this year. Says the person who's like, I didn't listen to a j- single Japanese woman. That's false. Year. That's false. That's totally false. Because like, if you look back at my, if you look back at the episode for I think October, my album of the month was A Witches. Okay, fine. You didn't listen to a single Japanese woman outside of A Witch. And Yumi Matsutoyo. Because, of course, you love conservative women. Oh, my God. You are just like... <laughs> so, I guess it's my turn now, right? Yeah. So, um, I will start with the album. Because I think by now, everyone knows what my favorite album is. Because, like, even before the album came out, when the album was announced, I was just like, this is going to be album of the year. And, yep, it was easily just like... And that would be Theros EO. Yes. So, because when I was talking earlier about just like the idea of an album, I really do feel like this is an album that really does feel like a cohesive body of work. Yeah, they released a couple of like digital singles beforehand, but they like the way they went and remixed them to be the album versions, I found really interesting. They like added like a lot of different production features on them compared to their original forms. And the album just sounds, the thing that's interesting about Sarah is that like each of their albums sounds like really different. Like this one feels like, I feel like Obscure Ride would probably be like my favorite album of theirs still. And I would maybe even say that this is my second favorite of theirs because what why second favorite i don't know because i feel like obscure ride was just like was well it that like set them on the map a high water mark but like this one it just felt so instrumentally rich and it felt like they were being adventurous still but like I really enjoyed it. And I think, like, part of it is because, like, I linked the album with, like... Because it came out right before I went to Japan. So I listened to it, like, a lot in Japan. And then also, too, I remember just, like... Like, I remember particularly, like, being on the train and, like, listening to Tableau and just, like, going along Lake Biwa. Like, when I was going from... Osaka to Kanazawa and Tableau and just like there's this part where like like the whole song just like opens up to just like this massive like place where like you think of just like a landscape and I just like looked at the landscape of the lake like in front of me this mass expansive lake and it kind of just like went and really triggered it really links that song in my mind and then also it's so like, funny because you haven't mentioned the fact that Patrick took you to the party. I'm getting that. I'm getting that. I'm getting there. So actually, I would say my favorite song of the year is actually from the album, too, which would be the song, the closing track, Angelus Novus. It is, it's a very emotional song. It's a bit sad. And, like, I remember just, like, listening to that song, like, and looking, I remember, like, my first hotel that I left, when I left Tokyo, I remember just, like, I was listening to the album, and then it was raining the last day I was there, because it was the rainy season when I was there in June. 
And I remember just like looking out on Shinjuku and the rain and like the song was playing and it was like it struck like a really like emotional chord within me. But yeah, I really like the album, it just like it's cool, but then also mysterious, but then emotional. There's just like so much going on with the album and like I really love it. And I will say that like one of my big regrets of my trip is not going to go see them in Hiroshima on the Friday, the second Friday I was there when I could have. I mean, like, I was like, do I really want to go to, do I really want to go from Tokyo to Osaka to Kanazawa down to Hiroshima to see Saro for one night and then go back to Tokyo? Do I really want to do that? No, I don't want to do that. So I didn't see them. But as Hannah just said, I did, I guess I could say that I did my indie Oshikatsu, right, Patrick? That's accurate. Yeah, because Patrick was there, um, obviously, because he lives there. So I got to see Patrick for the first time in, ooh, four and a half years. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I was there because the last one was in Japan before then was like the Halloween where shit went down. (laughs) And Ronald flipped the truck. Oh, yeah. I remember going out there that Halloween, Halloween 2018. That was the year where they were just like, okay, no more of this. I remember like there was a truck flipped over and there was a building on fire and I was just like, oh, this is Japan. Welcome to Japan. Um, I was drinking a strong zero out on the street, so I had a good oh time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> As so, you should have been. Yeah. Halloween 2018. Yeah. So I was like, where should we meet? And he was just like, actually, I have the perfect place to take you. And I was like, where? He was just like, there's a Cerro bar in Asagaya. I was like, a Cerro bar? What is that? And he was just like, it's a bar that's owned by Cerro. And I was like, <gasps> okay, yeah, let's go there. So we went to the Cerro bar. I also, I also, I was with my friend. I was with my friend Samuel, who like, Earlier that day, I was just like, oh, we should, like, go eat. And then, like, we meet a friend. And he was like, who are you meeting? And I was like, Patrick St. Michael. He was like, the one that wrote the perfume book. I was like, yes. Do you know him? He was like, of course I know him. He wrote the perfume book. Can I come? Can I meet him? I should have brought my perfume book. He could have autographed it. But, yeah, you met met Samuel that night. Very lovely. Sam, it was very nice. <laughs> um, but we went to the Cerro Bar, and it was actually full at first. We couldn't go to the Cerro Bar, so we ended up going oh, to yeah. that Chinese indie music bar. Uh, also, guys, new Chinese indie music bar operated by the the former manager of Carsa Cars, the heroic Chinese indie rock band. And there was a concert there. Yes, and it was experimental like, concert. <laughs> Yeah, it was like throat singing or yes. something like that, like electronic throat singing. She's like, oh, 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 and like simps in the background, and they were like serving like Chinese liquor. It was it was fun, and then we went back to the Cerro Bar. We went to the Cerro Bar. It was like pretty empty at that point, and they had drinks named after their songs. It and Ronald was in his happy place. I had the yellow magus because I like that song. 
I was just like, okay, we'll have this. And it was very good, very citrusy, very refreshing. And then they had keychains in different colors. And so I like the color blue. So I bought the Cero keychain, which I actually use every day now because it's in my wallet. And it just has like, it's like one of those old style ones. It looks like kind of like something you get from like a sleazy motel. Um, It just has like... What? (laughs) Roji. Asagaya, Tokyo, with like the with like the telephone number of the bar and like this like couple like lounging. I paid ten dollars for it. I mean, this seems extremely fitting for how Sarah's music like feels like. If you get my drift, sleazy. No, 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 no. It just feels like a like upstairs bar in Asagaya. Like, if I was doing, uh, if I was, like, driving across the U.S. and I found some, like, nice, cozy hotel on the side, like, I'd be like, oh, this is where I should listen to a Sarah album. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, when I think about, like, my trip this year, I feel like it was, like, one big, like, Oshikatsu In one way or another, yes. Because, like, I was originally going to go... And then I was originally going to go. I wanted to go this year and I couldn't go because I like my mile. I had my miles and I was like, oh, you can't go. But I was like, I already like having my mind. I'm going to go. So I was like, you know, just like pay for it out of pocket, whatever. And I was like, oh, I can go see stones. And then it turned into, oh, I can go see snowman. So the whole concert, the whole trip was built around snowman. And then I was going to go see Sarah, but then I didn't want to go to Hiroshima. So I went to their bar instead. I can't believe you didn't go to their concert though it was in hiroshima and patrick correct me if i'm wrong but like wasn't like the leader of the band like kind of like ranting at a concert about how the album didn't sell ah it's possible he mentioned it ranting might be the wrong word but disgust might be might be accurate because I do, like, this is, like, I remember, like, I did buy the album when I was in Japan at Tower Records, you know, after I scared the Stones fans. Um, but I did buy the album while I was there. But I do remember it, like, debuting at, like, number 27, which is remarkably less than where it de- where the previous one debuted, which was, like, number 8. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like... He definitely looks at the charts and he definitely sees just like, hey, like our last album was a top 10 album and now this one's not even top 20. Oh, dear. So like when I was talking earlier about like artists and like how do they survive, like that's something I was like thinking about where he was like actually mentioning the success of his band. Mm -hmm. My like to take it all back, actually, let's loop this. This is a good point to end on, I think, when we revisit the discussion about is the album dead or not? You know, when I listen to Sarah's EO, I think of that as some an, a group or an artist approaching the album as a statement, right? And to me, that's not, even if previous releases have been commercial successes, this is the type of album where I'm like, this will have a deeper impact going mm-hmm. forward. Maybe not on the Oricon charts, maybe not on the Billboard charts, but like you're doing something very clearly artistic here. Perhaps you won't have a drink on the menu named the Evening News. However, 
like the impact this album will have is I think gonna really like reverberate through Japanese musical history, you know? I think really? Be, I think so, because- Isn't I mean, it like number one on every critics list this year, you said? Well, yeah, because I think um, when this album came out, Japanese music journalists were like masterpiece, like perfect, 10 out of 10. Like it's making- They were calling it like the first true classic of like the, 2020s basically right yes it was very like instantly like embraced by critics and fans like the sort of fans who will tweet this is a classic mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. me and i do think <laughs> and ronald <laughs> um but no it's true like you know i think the album does still serve that function as a way for people to truly like express themselves and make a sort of big artistic statement even in an environment, uh, whether it's because of streaming or because like physical albums are more about like gathering a quote unquote era of music together to make it a souvenir for fans. Like an album like this to me is very like, it's an album with a capital A and that's what they want. They did interviews that were kind of like breaking down like you know, this is an album that means a lot to us. It's very ambitious. So, yeah, I think that's, to me, like, for all of the changes we talk about, the album and the album as a vessel for artists to express themselves is very much so alive, and that's mm-hmm. a perfect example of it. Thank you for that insight. Um... Yeah, I mean, like, I really, like, I really do like Saro a lot, like, I mean, it's such, like, a weird trajectory, like, they went from being just, like, this, like, smaller band to, like, there was, like, the watershed moment. Patrick, what was the watershed moment with Saro? Oh, the watershed moment was Saro being on Smop Smop, of course, to perform, I know, Summer Soul, which is... Also, the cocktail I got at the Sarah Bar. What did it Very taste funny. like? Um, I want to say it was citrusy as well, but maybe a different citrus. So I know that I mine blank. had like yuzu in it. I think mine was more. I think mine was more orange or mekong, if you will. But yeah, it was very um, summery to say the least. Very Next fitting. Time. But. Next but yeah, Sarah on Smop Smop is is true. Like we've made it every time. <laughs> and then it was just like I remember you talking about the next album. You were just like, yeah, um, we easily could have like you know continued down that route, um, and you know ended up like Suchmos, but um, we didn't want to do that. Instead, we made. Poly- so we discovered life. polyrhythms, and we we're like, yeah. we'll just do this. We'll do Polylife Multi Soul. Mm-hmm. Another great album, but like my personal favorite of Sarah, but yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I'm just throwing it out there that, like, you know, I think it will come to them, but I do see like Sarah, Rachel Music Darlings. Like, I'm like, I'm putting my, my fingers to my temple now and just like transmitting a telepathic wave to Rachel Music and be just like Rachel Music, Sarah, Darlings. <laughs> 
Gen Alpha is going to make them <laughs> the Fishmans of the 2040s. I don't want to wait that long. Oh, okay, fair. Okay. I will say, though, I think part of the reason why they might be a little bit fixated on the numbers isn't because of livelihood as much as it is, like, speaking... I mean, I'm sorry to be the the person who has looked at financials before. And so I need to bring back the numbers. But it's not even a matter of livelihood. It's just, like, there's certain targets and quotas that, like, these labels set people, right? And they're just like, we want you to be uh, number one on this particular label. And they'll totally see that. And so they were probably just like, last time you were within the top 10 and now you are uh not even top 20 yeah yeah and so i could totally see that being one of the major reasons it's like an unfortunate reality that like these people do not update these freaking metrics sometimes for decades so i would say that's probably one of the biggest reasons why it was probably on their mind well, they're on Kuba Rhythm. Kaba, is it Kaba Rhythm or Kuba Rhythm? Patrick. Label they're on. It was Kakuba Rhythm. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, like, it's a it's like a, a small indie label, so, I mean... Yeah, but their finance person Kuba. comes from somewhere, <laughs> right? Yeah. I think it's Hoshino Gaffin. <laughs> oh, God! Oh, yeah, because he was on Sake Rock. He was on it. He was on it. Yeah, Sake Rock. <laughs> this is like Hoshino Gen's like, side project. Like, I'm the CEO of Kava Rhythm. You know, just a little hobby to do on the side. Just fun hobbies that, like, somebody who gets 15% of the Japanese Spotify pie can do. <laughs> but, like, this is, like, a question like to like round things out about this one last thing um do you think someone said to me the other day there's this like particular twitter user that i talk to often who's like obsessed with charts and he was just like asking me like do you think there are artists that are like really self-involved with charts and how well they do yes he said that you think that yosobi is one of them If you look at the the way that um, they plan out New Jeans songs and stuff, it's very clear that their producer is absolutely obsessed with charts. But do you think there's like a Japanese act like that? Uh, I don't think IS is actually as obsessed with charts. Maybe like their team is, but given the conversations that i've even had with sony i would say no um definitely the idol groups yeah i would say like it's more so definitely the tiktok what um Mm -hmm. i I think idol groups with whatever is like trending with tiktok maybe there's a um like a small faction of like like posts i guess well making up genres now but like post fruit zipper oh uh, yeah the really um calling up yamamoto show the songwriter for it to really Mm -hmm. like make something very similar to fruit zipper that would 
that has a lot of hooks and a lot of arrangements that's really good, at least a course for it, for like TikTok viral, like going TikTok viral as, you know, like people will dance to it, make choreographies for it and stuff like that. Um, but I feel like more on the idol area and then TikTok and specifically, you know, whether or not that is indicative of like bigger charts, but I feel like that's a one they're paying attention to. Mm. Okay, well, I believe that is it for this year. Dun, dun, dun. So does anyone have any last words? We're going to start with Patrick. I would say, honestly, like, for all of the important developments of 2023, I kind of think 2024 is going to be even bigger, just because there's so much actual physical international stuff happening. Mm-hmm. that I, I think next year, I, I feel in a lot of ways 2023 was like a staging thing. Staging Here's the zone. real staging. <laughs> Heck yeah. Let's go staging. Moment of appreciation. Um, I kind of think 2024 is going to be very interesting to watch because I think it's going to be the real moment of seeing how Japanese music truly faces the world. So uh, stay tuned. It really reminds me of that whole article that came out the other day from Variety, talk, you know, the Hollywood Reporter talking about how even like on streaming services like Netflix and Disney Plus, how like they are really looking at like Japanese content as being like the next big thing. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, I personally think we're kind of already there just because Honestly, it's all down to people realizing anime. It's more just people accepting that anime and video games are really popular. And like, my people. They were talking more about just like the live action adaptations, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's the next my step people. As well. Let's the, my people go. But the thing, the thing is, though, is that with that, is that you can get someone to like a watch watch a live action based on the fact that just like oh is this japanese movie rather than like you could get someone like a regular person to like watch an anime like really weird example yeah, yeah. is that my coworker was just like oh i watched this like drama on apple tv the show on apple tv yesterday the guy the star of it was like really handsome and he's japanese do you know who he is i was like no he was just like it's a show about wine and I was just like, a show about why on Apple TV? <gasps> Is it this guy? And she was like, yeah, that's him. He's really sexy. And I was like, sexy? <laughs> she was talking about Tomohisa Yamashita. <laughs> that's the thing. Like, this has always been a thing, right? This has always been a constant thing. And us anime fans were just like, the, 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 the bar. The floor is very high. We will watch anything. We watched the Death Note live action, right? Like, you want to talk about train wrecks? It's called the Death Note live action. But, like, yeah, like, we'll, we'll always be there for this. So they're finally taking us seriously. <laughs> but, um, I have been told... I have been told just like that I will be quite busy next year. So looking forward to that. 
So there are some things happening. Dun, dun, dun. But um, I do, I, I, um, yeah, so I, I do hope to be able to make it. I am I actually, I plan to go back to Japan in March. So. Get um, again. Well, I actually got a ticket this time with my rewards. So, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, let's see. Because I bought it so far in advance. But, like, I hope that I can go still. Unless something else pops up. But, um, oh, bro, your last words. Um, well, I think, like I said in the beginning, it's a really good time to tune into Japanese music right now. Um, even if you lack the context of it, I feel like there's so many like adjacent points, whether it be anime, movies, um, inter- internet adjacent things that will like really help you you know, even if it's a joke, kind of get into it and really find something for it. And then right now, I feel like J-pop is at a transition point where, like, it's really making something new that's unique to the 2020s, really defining that, whether it be, like, the songwriting style or the sounds that they prefer, that I think right now is a good time to write to it when it comes to mainstream pop that, you know, um, that will kind of get you hooked into it for the long run. So... I think yeah, like it's been thriving right now, and it's like if if you're only casually into it, it's a really good time to do like a deep dive, find a good pocket for it, um, and then yeah, just like it's a nice time to get hooked to it. I think. Hannah. Well, I am always if there is a poptimist, I am the otakumist. Does that even make sense? It does. Otaku, otaku optimist. (laughs) But yeah, like, so I couldn't even get into it, but the numbers actually understate just how big the manga side especially has become. Because a lot of the numbers both, and I complain about this from time to time um, on Twitter, but both Japan and the United States do not count website and manga application reads. And if the line surveys are to be believed, 60% of all people only consume manga through the free website services. So take the number that you're seeing and then divide that by five over three. And that's the, that's the real number. Or divide that by three-fifths. Oh my gosh, I can't math. It's it's like two in the meaning. Um, but yeah, and it's also the same for the U.S. I actually don't know how big the figures are. But like, as much as Ronald loves to be like, nobody around me watches anime. What are you talking about, Hannah? Like, we are all around you. We run the internet. Well, like I said, like no one around you listens to XG, and I'm hearing XG like in regular life and from people I know. Wait, I actually didn't say that. I did not say that. You uh, did say that. Now people around me, unfortunately, listen to XG. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's one of those things where I think it's actually only going to go larger, and because of some of, like it's kind of like. We need our next superhero boom. And if the numbers are anything to go by, it's probably coming from video games. 
those video games tend to come from one country, man. <laughs> and One Piece was the largest open in Netflix history this year. And the other two were both South Korean manga-inspired pieces. One of them was directly inspired by a liar game. Like, the, the script writer even said, like, I wrote this because I watched Liar Game and I thought it was really cool. And then I held on to it for 10 years and Netflix finally bought it. And then the thing that immediately beat that was a direct adaptation of a Korean webtoon series. So that alone should tell you like the trajectory that this content is going in. So go download webtoon. Download, well, you can't download Pikoma if you're not in Japan, but Patrick should download Pikoma and join me. <laughs> Noted. I'll put it on the to-do list. Yeah, like, go on to see MoMA. I just got Ro addicted to it. It's okay. The The yen is 150 to a dollar, I think, still. So things should be fairly cheap for us. Yeah, join. for you. <laughs> That's true. It's cheap for me. <laughs> so... Um, my closing words are basically, well, thank you everyone for listening to the podcast over the year and for reading the site. Like we did have our first anniversary of yeah. the site like a couple of weeks ago. So thank you for that. Um, thank you to our guests for joining. So yeah. you know what I feel like right now? I feel like, I feel like that Mariah Carey video I played for you at, um, at that bar in DC when we were reading Chicken Fingers after interviewing Travis Japan. Which one and was that? It's when Mariah Carey won her um, won her um, award for um, Artist of the Decade at the Billboard Awards, I think it was. And she was just like, she was like, forget the rumors, forget the big hair, short skirts, whatever. I do this for the fans, and I will never ever forget you. I feel like we come a long way, and I'm just getting started. Wow. Yeah, that's what I feel like. Because I feel like we have like. We've come like a long way, like all of us, like, yeah. Because yeah. it was just like, wait, like we're sitting here talking about this like random stuff on the internet. And now it's just like, oh, they're actually like on our TVs. Oh, they're actually like doing tours, like interesting, very interesting how this all panned out. So, yeah, I mean, like, people are, like, very, people are sometimes, like, critical of, like, what I like and what I write and everything, but, like, I'm just being honest and true to me, like, just because I don't write about something doesn't mean I hate it, I'm not, I don't hate women, I like lots of female acts. Everyone's like, a little bit misogynistic. Shut up. <laughs> Skill issue. I mean, like, I'm just happy that, like, that, like, we are, like, that like Japanese music is like the gacha pop of the world. There's something for everybody. I mean, like, yeah. I had fun this year and I hope you guys did too. And next year, who knows what will happen next year? Cause I will say that this year, it was trying sometimes this year because I was just like, ooh, I don't know. Is my are are my faves gonna make it this year? I don't know, but they did. 
they did and everything is um so ro actually i know that one of your favorite male idol songs is actually coming to my head right now and i'm gonna sing a part it's like hey just give me a rainbow yeah so which one is that it's king and prince rainbow great song for a gummy commercial Oh, looking out and grace are so great. A great, no, what was that? I forgot. It's like looking out now and gray skies will fall away or something. Like, Kimi, Kimi, shine, shine. Like, I like the song. It actually was going to be my number one, but like, I thought about like from an analytical standpoint, and I was just like, even though I really do like Rainbow, I have to give my favorite song of the year to. Angela Snow. You still had you still found time to sing it, so it was good. I still, <laughs> I still found time to sing it. Yeah. So it was a good year. I got to go back to Japan. I got to meet and interview lots of people. Like oh, speaking of which, like everyone, everyone's here has interviewed somebody. So like who was your favorite interview this year, real quick? Starting with Patrick. Oh jeez. Um mm. One sec. I want to confirm that I interviewed this person in this calendar year. That was last year. Um. Oh gosh, who was my favorite interview? <laughs> Can you come back to me? <laughs> okay. Rio. I only really got to interview one person, which is great, though. Um, I got to have the opportunity to uh, interview Hakushi Hasegawa um, and just interview about their, like, you know, it's um, all, like, the music that they like um, um, growing up in conjunction to their brain feeder signing. But, yeah, it was actually pretty nice. Like, they were a very pleasurable interview. Um, all, very open to their musical processes and the like thoughts going into it, very elaborate. So it was really nice getting to know what goes on to like what make what kind of music that they make. Hannah. Okay. Uh so the cough interview was very good. I wanna say like in second place I actually Wanna say it might be the cough interview was good for a different reason than the sauna interview, and it's because the cough one was really someone talking about herself from like multiple different perspectives as she understood it. Whereas like the sauna interview was very clearly like a retrospective of someone who, like, has been working for 20-plus years, right? So it was two very, very different interviews, but both were really good. Um, I think. So if I had to... Actually, I will say this, is that, funny enough, my favorite interview this year was actually not musically related. Was it one of your movie ones? It was. It was. Actually, like, when I, I think about my favorite interviews this year, it would be the one I did for Egoist with Suzuki Railway. And yeah, I thought director, it was that one. The director, Matsunaga Daishi, because I remember being in Japan. I remember being in Japan and, like, them have it, them announcing the New York Asian Film Festival. 
And I was just like, is this the moment where Agalus comes to New York? And it was. And I remember just like emailing them saying like, can we get press? Can we get interviews? And then they emailed me back when I was there and they were like, yeah, you're um, confirmed for Agalus. And I was like, oh, okay. And then funny enough, talking about that Hollywood Reporter story, like my subject Suzuki, he actually was in the header because he's doing, he's going to be the lead in the live action version of City Hunters coming out on Netflix next year. So, yay. Well, I had a lot of great interviews this year. It was, it was good. Yeah. Was, this year was really, really good. Yeah. A lot of next film. Next year's going to be better. A lot of film ones, because I, I did, I did that one and I did, um. But we had two film festivals, even if the second one didn't really pan out. But like, yeah. Um, The King New interview for his movie. That guy. (laughs) That's weird, but like. Very interesting movie. Um, But yeah. So. Patrick, who's your answer? So, I mean, the ominous answer is it's definitely an interview I did, but the story hasn't been published yet. So it'll TBD 2024. But um, to answer the question of 2023, I had the chance to interview um, the saxophonist, Jiro Inagaki, Mm -hmm. uh, who's like this very like, accomplished Japanese saxophonist. He's been playing since the 1960s. And honestly, any chance to talk with someone who's lived a life like that, he's 90 years old currently. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like just being able to learn just about what the world, whether it's musical or just general was like, for like 90 years is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a lot of like, tidbits throughout that interview I'll always like kind of value as being like oh wow I would never have thought of it that way or that's fascinating that's like something I'll never truly understand but you've been able to share this with me so that would be my number one just because it's special cool 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 well on that note Thank you for listening, and thank you everyone for coming here and having our year-end episode. And um, thank you for having us. <laughs> Yay! Thank you again. Thank you, everybody, and good night. Woohoo! Yes. Everyone can say good night, not just me. Oh, good night. Good night, good night everybody. Good night, Nante Nation. Nante Nation. Yeah. Why not? Go for it. <laughs> Oh my god, is that our fandom name, Nante Nation? Give it a whirl. See if it's six. Oh, oh my god. Nante Nation, thank you. Like good night, Nante Nation. <laughs> <laughs> good night. <laughs>